Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 34 of the program where we look at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. Sitting here freezing cold and still trying to kick off this cold and flu, I can't shake it. I'm Steve Vischer. And sitting over here in the not-so-cold, well, it is cold but I'm more used to it perhaps, is Grant McCarran. What do you reckon, Grant? Do you think our overseas listeners in Europe and in the United States would be laughing at our notions of it being cold when it's still about 10 above freezing? Yeah, yeah, 10 degrees Celsius. That's cold for us. That's cold. You know, I have lived through minus 40. Yes, I spent some time in Boston and I'm going to be out at zero degrees to five degrees type of thing, maybe 12 at the most when I'm out flying balloons in a couple of weeks out in the country. But um, yeah, look, I like 20 degrees. That's a nice temperature. Thank you very much. Yeah, of course, I've been out doing fire brigade training this morning, so I'm sitting here. My clothes are dripping wet, which doesn't help. Uh, No, not a good look. You're not supposed to get yourself covered by the foam or the water, dude. Yeah, well, anyway, that's why I need more training. I thought they put you in in the smoke room or into the um, into the fire pit, you know, so you could dry out afterwards. No, no, (laughs) mate. You know, smoking's bad for your health. Oh, yeah. Sorry, forgot about that. Haven't you read the warnings? Coming up this week on the show, folks, we've got it packed with interviews. We've got quite a bit of content that we've been uh, collecting since the last time we put a show out. We're going to kick it off with a uh, wonderful interview that we recorded with Hannes Ark, the 2008 Red Bull Air Race World Champion, and. uh, he was very kind enough to uh, join us on the line oh, two or three weeks back, Grant, wasn't it? Yeah. So we, as usual, we thought we might get five or ten minutes out of him, and in fact, it turned into at least half an hour, so we're really thrilled with that. Also, this week, we're going to be talking to Gary Clark. Now, Gary Clark is the um, editor, the illustrator of the well-known comic called The Swamp, and uh, we thought we'd have a chat to Gary because he is a, a Brisbane-based pilot, and uh, he a lot of his characters uh, pertain to uh, aviation uh, characters, and a lot of the comic strips, in fact, do find their way into various uh, aviation places around. You'll often see the Swamp comic strip, for instance, clipped up on notice boards at flying schools and places like that. So a uh, really great chat we had with Gary. We also have an interview with one of Grant's ballooning buddies, Richard Turnbull. Okay, Richard Turnbull is a uh, balloon pilot from the UK who was down here in Australia for a season flying balloons with Picture This Ballooning, one of the companies I do some work with. And so uh, I just the day before he was due to fly home, I managed to get some time with him. Unfortunately, it was also during the time that the guys were backing uh, vehicles back into the shed. So you have a bit of beep, beep going on in the background and a couple of things like that. But we managed to get a recording together huddled into the uh, office space, which is kind of echoey concrete block space. So not the optimum place for an interview, but it was a good fun chat with Richard about his history flying balloons and uh, hot air airships. So that'll be coming up a bit later in the show. Also some good news if you live in the Melbourne area and uh, particularly in the southeast area of Melbourne, the uh, Turidan Flying School. Uh, it's about 60 or 70 kilometres uh, southeast of uh, the Melbourne CBD and uh, it's probably would be best described as my local airfield. Well, um, they're actually back in business. So Grant and I popped down a couple of weeks ago and had a bit of a chat to Angie Marino, who's the manager down there, and she he uh, gave us a bit of a chat about uh, what's going on and some of the new things they're doing and uh, really encouraging Grant to see that school back in action because uh, I often say, I often talk about Turidan and regard it as a bit of a uh, wasted resource. It's a wonderful little field, well-placed and um, yeah, great to see that school running. Yeah, no, definitely. I've, I've been down there a couple of times, uh, been uh, flowing in with some friends once or twice and uh, it's great also to note that the restaurant, uh, Wings and Fins, is back up and running. It uh, does sort of specialise in local seafood as well as uh, food that the rest of 
of us can eat <laughs> and uh, <laughs> not those of us who aren't allergic to seafood but um, yeah it's a um, it's it's a great great little airport and I'm ecstatic to see that uh, they're, they're kicking it into high gear they've done a lot of really good things in that uh, clubhouse school area that we saw excellent Grant and we really need to get down there and do a, uh, a restaurant review of Wings and Fins because the last time I went there it was absolutely wonderful yeah. we should get a bunch of PCDU folks together and go on down do a tweet up yeah we should do that we'll um, we'll all we'll, uh, we'll get that organised by which I mean I'll get you to organise it for us uh, roger that <laughs> roger that it's on my to-do list lad okay lovely alright then and just to cap that all off Anthony Simmons rejoins us again with the view from the lounge he's uh, got a bit of a trip report uh, on Emirates predominantly on his uh, recent trip to Europe Emirates now proud owners of more A380s than anyone else yeah absolutely so that's good and of course we'll uh, we'll finish it off with some uh, listener feedback and some shout outs so Grant once again we started off thinking we'll make this a relatively short one this time but it's going to be a marathon so let's kick it off okay I've been limbering up I've been in training alright at start as orders stretch stretch ha. Oh, okay on your marks get set no. I'm not running anywhere. Oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. Man, you, you even have someone else do the jogging when you play Wii Fit. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Well, folks, we've certainly had a lot of news about the Red Bull Air Race recently, and of course, the round in Rio de Janeiro was unfortunately washed out with the uh, with the inclement weather. Unfortunately, Hannes Ark was declared the winner there, and we're very fortunate to have him on the line now from Austria. Hi, Hannes, how are you? Hello, everybody down there on the other side of the world. I'm fine. I'm very fine. Well, of course, it wasn't long since you were here last, enjoying the nice weather in Perth, and uh, unfortunately, the weather over there in Rio wasn't so kind to you. Actually, the weather was somehow kind to me, somehow not kind to the event because uh, we realized that the weather was uh, would be bad on uh, on Sunday, so we did all our tactics and treated the qualifying day as a race day and uh, finally that paid off, so I'm quite happy about that. That was a good call, being able to make that estimate that the uh, the weather would probably be bad and going all out, so well done for that. Hannes, yeah. so, so when you were doing your qualifying runs, Hannes, you made the decision to go uh, flat out on that run just in case the weather might have washed out the uh, final round? Yeah, that that's uh, ex- exactly that's right. Uh, I briefed all my team. I said, like, look, guys, uh, we have to be one day ahead of the game because it looks like the uh, Sunday will be bad. So my team was prepared. Also mentally, we treated actually qualifying day like a race day. And my tactics was that I will go flat out for both runs, just risk, because me trying to catch up to Paul, for me, it just makes sense if I win. If I get second, third, or last in a qualifying, it doesn't make sense. So I said, like, let's risk it. I need that point, and if I get that point, then I'm also, like, uh, in a good position for tomorrow, for next race. And basically, that tactics was the right one but to be honest I knew that also Paul and the others did that kind of tactics I mean not all but like the leading teams I would say well it's it's paid off because you uh, you you won in Rio and you're now uh, third overall for the for the season so that's that's pretty good yeah I mean I mean I'm I'm really happy because uh, I was so far behind the first race and now I see a light in the sky you know I catch uh, I, I close the gap between Paul and me there's only Nigel one point ahead of me and now uh, I mean, sure, if I do a major mix mistake, I'm, I'm far behind again, but that's the same now for Paul and everybody in the league. Now I'm really close to the guys, and now I see 
um, good chances uh, for me to continue my journey and, and finally my aim is to get the World Champion title back. And uh, Nigel Lamb, is, he's one point ahead of you in the championship overall and uh, we've, we spoke to Nigel recently and we we're uh, talking a lot about the winglets that he's running on his aircraft. Have you given any consideration to uh, experimenting with winglets on your aircraft at all? Um, actually, we did a lot of consideration about uh, modifications like that in the last couple of, I would say, years. But came to the conclusion there are advantages, but also disadvantages. And finally, uh, I would say they don't help. But there is one thing where they help, and that's why Nigel applies that good at the moment. They seem to help him making his aircraft handle much nicer. So he feels now much more comfy on that aircraft, and that's what you can see. He's just flying his lines, really perfect lines. He's flying uh, exactly how he plans to fly the track, you know. And uh, that's what you never saw with Nigel. And I always thought, like, that must be the MX. It's much more difficult to fly than an Edge. And an Edge is a simple aircraft. It's really simple to fly. And basically, I don't need those wingtips because my Edge flies so stable. So from that point of view, I don't want to mess around with those modifications as well spend the money into engine modifications. More grunt from the engine to drag you through better and, and that will balance it out for you. Exactly. Is the Edge a lighter aircraft than the MX? I would say the new V3 is probably a little bit lighter than the new MX and we are way below the minimum weight, which everybody would say, well, that doesn't make sense. But it makes sense for me because my tactics for the future is to put a lot of additional telemetry stuff in there and all kind of other instruments that help the pilot in the future to do his job out there much more easier that help the team to analyze and so we have now room for that uh, additional weight plus we also can shift weight now to trim the aircraft exactly for the for the track you know and i mean that's not all working still now because we're still in the process to deal with those things to figure out how does it work and lots of experimenting still now but I'm sure in the future that will help a lot. And from that point of view, the new MX, I think it's called MXS, and the new HV3 are, uh, have a big advantage in that in that sense. I noticed that Matt Hall was uh, making some reference to um, having to adjust the uh, centre of gravity in his aircraft. Apparently he was having some trouble with that. Do you need to make these adjustments for every track, or is it something that you like to sort of set and leave for the season if you can? Or is, it, is that something that you have to constantly change? I mean, uh, me as a pilot, for sure, I feel more comfy if I have one centre of gravity point uh, for all the year because uh, I get used to certain handling and then I can deliver all my skills. Basically, it makes the job of the pilot easier because you get used to that handling. But on the other hand, I'm sure that sometimes it's better for a certain track, for example, a track with long straight lines, to have the CG well far back because uh, then uh, you have a little bit more performance and you get another small percentage out of the aircraft, which helps if you can handle it. And I mean, that's exactly what I said before. It's more about like learning about all those things, figuring it out, and then then using those advantages. But that is not just like an advantage you buy in the shop and implement it and it works. You have to really deal with it, get the experience, implement it, and deliver it during the race. And that's the key basically in racing, and that, that's what makes it so exciting in racing, I would say. Okay, Hannes, uh, so moving on now, of course... Red Bull Air Racing is not the only thing you do. We're reading some of your bio here, and you're you're into base jumping, and uh, says here you've been 
doing some test pilot work, is that right? Uh, to, uh, what would be a normal day in the life of Hannah Sark? It sounds like it's uh, much more exciting than the, than the average person. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, what I'm doing right now, Red Bull Air Racing is the most serious conservative job I ever did in my life compared to what I did before. Before I was like, for a couple of years, it was a paragliding uh, test pilot, which means that every day in the morning you look out the window, the weather is nice, and you go up there and test some new gliders or help to uh, design new gliders for the market. Or, or and, and I had some pretty scary moments out there. Also, I used like my rescue canopy, I think six or seven times in my life, just testing those those paragliders. And uh, besides that, I, I started to develop aerobatic flying with paragliders, which which was uh, 10, 15 years ago, something completely new. So I was really 100% in that sport, did also World Cups and, and flying all over the world. That was one part of my flying career. The other part was I'm, I was a base jumper. Got excited about that and uh, and did lots of uh, first jumps from, from high mountains like the Matterhorn, like the famous mountains in Switzerland and stuff like that. Just, I mean, I don't know, it was... It was an experience, and it fitted to my life. At that time, I wouldn't do it now anymore. <laughs> that, that was fun when you were younger and crazier, right? <laughs> Probably, yes. <laughs> yeah. so, so did you start flying in paragliders, or was that the first thing you flew in? No, actually, my first thing I flew is, uh, was a hang glider. I started when I was 15 years old. I, was lots, I grew up in the mountains in Austria, and uh, there was like a couple of guys who started with hang gliding, and I helped those guys carrying the hang glider on, on the mountain and then was just watching them launching, you know, and it was so peaceful and nice. And I, I just went home to my father and said, Dad, I want to start hang gliding. And he said, okay, let's do it together. And that was basically with 15 years, I started together with my dad, which is something really nice thinking back uh, to those times and started my flying career together with my dad and I, I when I when I got pulled off the ground the first time I got excited and my dad was there. It was just a nice nice experience and now I'm really happy and scared that I started with that kind of flying because for me that kind of flying including aerobatics or what we do with air racing now, that's like the real flying. It's not combined with computers and everything is uh, controlled and, and there's an autopilot for everything, you know, it's, it's just like you feel the airplane, you look, you fly and that's, yep. that's for me the most exciting about flying. And you're all, it also says here in, uh, actually in the media kit I got from the Red Bull Air Race, I didn't realise this actually, Hannes, but you were a you're a professional helicopter pilot and you were actually served with the Red Bull Air Race as their aviation manager and race director, uh, I didn't actually know that, so you've been with them right from the start it sounds like. Uh, that's true, I was uh, <laughs> I was when I was uh, an active base jumper sponsored by Red Bull and did all those extreme sports on the side. I was training a lot since years already for my aerobatic flying. It was just a pure passion, you know, not combined as a job. And then when Red Bull started this Red Bull Air Race, I mean, the marketing department company who started Red Bull Air Race, you know, in the beginning, everything is improvised. And so they always called me a couple of weeks before and they just realized they need somebody who has a clue about aerobatics who can deal with the pilots, who can do briefings, who can be kind of like responsible on location for the whole aviation part. And that's why they called me always. And for sure, I was working so close with Red Bull. I just helped them out uh, the first year. The second year, I then got a job. The second year was more like the, the year when they first started the, the series uh, with six races. And uh, well, and I got 
thrown into this job. But realized then that I wanted to fly, you know, and I mean, you sit at the tower, you deal with your buddies, they can have fun out there, and you have to do emails and, and, and fight uh, with uh, aviation departments to get the permissions and, and, and all kind of ugly stuff, you know. So <laughs> finally, I decided I want to get the Aeros pilot. Speaking of the uh, the helicopter pilots, what a lot of people don't see, in fact, you, you don't see it on the TV, but of course, if you're at the race, um, you see, I think his name is Jörg Fleschmann, flying the uh, the helicopter, getting all the uh, the vision from the air. I would regard him as one of the most skilled pilots. His uh, flying skills are amazing. Would you agree? Absolutely, I would agree. Jörg is a couple of years with us now. And I mean, I know a lot of Swiss pilots who have really, really good skills. Jörg is one of them. And what makes him special is that he trains with us now, let's say a couple of years. He's flying with us together a couple of years and developed that kind of taking aerial pictures he's doing right now because it needs... Like he needs to know us and we need to know him, you know, so we mm. trust him completely. We never see him or most of the time. That's funny. Also, he's really close sometimes to us because we're so focused to fly through the track. But he, because we trust him, you know, and he knows exactly where he can move because he knows our moves. And that kind of like working together combined with his skills gives the audience those amazing pictures right now, you know. And uh, I think we all can be proud, and especially Jürg, we can be proud uh, about Jörg, that he's doing such a great job out there. But the most important thing is uh, what makes his job, I think, a little bit closer to ours. Helicopter flying is also a kind of aerobatic flying because you always have to feel the aircraft. It's not about automatic, controlled, whatever. You know, you feel the aircraft, you look, and you react, and that's kind of like the same flying. That's why I also love helicopter flying. We often talk about uh, pilots having to have really good situational awareness, and I, 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 although I've never flown a helicopter myself, I would imagine uh, that what you're talking about there is, is a clear example of that. And when you're watching him flying around the track, and, we, and Matt Hall said, told us the same thing, that he's never seen him when he's racing. He doesn't have to worry about that. But he's actually the busiest pilot there, isn't he, Hannes? He's, uh, I actually tried to get an interview with him, but uh, he's never on the ground. <laughs> I think he gets more flying time in there like uh, than, than than us. And I mean, knowing how much fun it is to fly helicopters, which means like you're out there, uh, you fly an aircraft and you have a task and you have to perform, you know, and it's basically more or less the same as we do. Uh, we have an aircraft and our task is to go around those pylons. So there's always a challenge out there, except that he is the challenge for a couple of hours being out there in the air. And from that point of view, I would love to change, you know, the, 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 the pilot seats. But, um, you know, you cannot do everything. And that's why I focus on, on, on air racing right now and treat the helicopter flying more like a, like a passion thing, uh, which I really love to do, especially in mountains in the future, hopefully once. That is a, that is a good uh, a question for you is uh, do you think that if you ever had enough flying as one of the races that you might move on and um, and help you out flying the helicopter, take turns or things like that? I would love to. I mean, to be honest, uh, I can imagine that the next career I'm shooting for could be to be a professional helicopter pilot in the mountains. I mean, I have a commercial pilot license, which doesn't mean that you that you are a good helicopter pilot. You know, it's all mm. about experience. And, and I just know how much challenge it is to fly rescue helicopters in mountains, mm-hmm. bad weather, yep. uh, different wind situations, all these different... Uh, different tasks and that's a challenge I really would love to do once uh, if I have the time if I'm committed I can imagine that I would love that way of flying 
I think yeah. it's the only way of flying I, I can imagine I do in the future because I'm absolutely not interested to get an airliner pilot <laughs> license or whatever. Honestly, I couldn't see you flying airliners, mate. Not that, not with what you've said about uh, you know uh, feeling the aircraft and and being one with the aircraft and all that kind of stuff. That's would be like driving a large car when you prefer you know a bus when you prefer a sports car. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's a little bit like that. Also, I don't want to be disrespectful to to those airliner pilots because it's a completely different task. I mean, they have to be really responsible. They have uh, to carry a load of responsibility on their shoulders. They have to yep. know about their their aircraft engines, uh, uh, computers, and uh, procedures, and and and. and and I just know I am not the guy. I I couldn't even do it, only if I wanted, because I'm I'm just not able to do it. That's why I focus on what I love. You no, know? yep. it's the way of flying. I know I'm good. I focus on that, and the other way of flying, where you need other specialists, uh, it's not mine. It's their task. You know. How many um, different kinds of aircraft have you flown, and um, and about how many hours have you got? I have uh, I have not so many hours. It's interesting thing. Um, I'm flying more or less since 12 years. I started my private pilot license uh, quite late it, uh, with my first money I earned from being a paragliding test pilot and then just moved directly to aerobatics. And uh, my experience is uh, flying aerobatic airplanes. And I flew, I think, like 10, 12, or 15 different types of those aerobatic airplanes, but focused mostly on, on I would say, extra and edge a little bit, also like Russian airplanes and whatever, but but focused mostly on extra 230 and H540, yep. and um, I got like I think around thousand hours on on the edge, and my maximum uh, uh, my my flight time in general with uh, fixed wing aircrafts uh, is 1,500, so okay. so a little bit of uh, alpha flying because I did. I did the licensure to get the experience, you know, and stuff. Yep. But that's it. Most of the time, I locked is aerobatic flying. Okay, and and helicopters. How how much time have you got in rotary? Helicopters is just uh, 500 hours. Most of those hours are also like just educational hours, which means different types. I did yep. some camera work. Did all my commercials like in the United States, in Switzerland, in Austria, and just go like out there whenever I'm whenever I have time and when I have the money and sometimes I do it like that at the end of the year just treat myself give pay myself a present <laughs> you know which is a new type rating on a helicopter or whatever yep. besides that I have my small R22 in, 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 in Salzburg I just use that for a little bit pleasure flying and just hop around like near in, in the Austrian mountains in Salzburg because that's what I can afford a small helicopter yeah no they're fun <laughs> R22s are fun. So, Hennis, the the race in uh, Rio, there were spectacular crowds there, huge crowds. I thought the crowds in Perth were pretty good too. How do you see the Red Bull Air Race developing? Uh, is it, in your view, becoming more popular with the crowds? Uh, your next two races, I, I guess, are in North America, and uh, you should be able to generate some pretty decent crowds there. But in general, do you, do you find it sort of catching on more and more each year? I think so. Uh, the air race develops really fast. I mean, just think like six years ago, there was nothing at all existing in that direction. And now we, we attract so many people and I can see a steady grow in, in crowds, not only like on location, but especially in front of the TV. And I think we're not allowed to measure just the pure amount of crowds because some years they are a little bit better than they are going back a little bit because maybe the weather was bad or other reasons, you know. But the quality is the important thing, you know. And uh, if you get, like, a lot of 
paying beepers on a lot of locations. That's like really helpful for the airways and that also shows the commitment of the fans because then they buy a ticket because they want to see the sports, you know. Other than that, I mean, you have locations like uh, in, in, in Perth and Rio where the entrance is free and where you just see lots of people just enjoying it where it's important for the town, for the, for the event location, for the host city that they give something to their people, you know. And I mean, that's, that's also a big, um, I would say, sign of the development of, of, of the sports that countries, host countries, host cities are more and more interested to get the areas to their place uh, because they know they have an exciting race, they have a sport, they have an attraction for the people. That's basically the best that could happen to the areas. Yeah. yeah. Well, of course, the, the, the advantage that the, the, the air races have over, say, Formula One racing is that you can see the whole race the whole time, whereas with <laughs> motor racing, you know, the sort of, you, you're only seeing bits and pieces at a time. But I, I really think that's one of the big bonuses for the Red Bull Air Race. It's, it's set up in a, in a reasonably compact location. And, well, I know I've been to Perth twice now, and uh, it's just perfect viewing, it's, and, it's, and it's spectacular viewing as well. I think that's absolutely right. It's perfect viewing, it's spectacular viewing, which means, like, it gives you everything that an air show can give you but additional to that, what makes the Aries, I think, successful is that it develops now as a sport. And I mean, if you look at us racing out there, we're racing like tenths of a second. Uh, we are tenths of a second close together. It's about sports. It's about motorsports, about tuning, about skills, about focus, concentration, all those attributes you have in a, in a normal sport. And that's what people realize. And that's what finally makes yeah, it's so exciting because there's a story, there's a history, there's a metal, there are those heroes. There is not just those heroes. There's like uh, winning and losing, and all those those games are played in these sports games that, which make a sport a sport. You know, I think that's what makes the area so exciting and makes it interesting also for the future. Now, oh. now uh, speaking of uh, the races in North America, the, the next race is uh, June 5th and 6th in Windsor in Canada. What's your preparation, Hannes, for now? Is uh, When will you be heading off from Austria and heading back across to uh, North America? Actually, uh, I will show up in, in, in North America quite early. We're still uh, working on the aircraft a little bit, doing some improvisation, so try to get uh, to the aircraft quite early. Plus, also, I want to fly as much as possible before the race, just like in a non-racing environment, because I need, I, I know that me personally, the more race time, the more aircraft time, the more time in the cockpit I have, the better I fly in the race. And so that's one preparation tactics from my side. And the other other tactic is just mentally. And, and I'm pretty strong in, in doing my mental preparation. And uh, I think that's the key for me for the rest of the year. I was um, I was just going to ask what you thought about uh, some of the new air racing that's coming out. For instance, you've got the um, aerobatic racing that's coming up in the US. They've just started this. It's two, I believe, it's two aerocraft flying aerobatics simultaneously, going through the same same routines. And then you've also got the Rocket Racing League, which is slowly gaining momentum, where um, aircraft are flying in the sky at the same time, although not next to each other, not quite like uh, the Reno air races where they're they're right next to each other. How do, you, how do you see these growing? Uh, are you aware of these races and, and where do you see them going? I mean, basically, I am, to be honest, not so aware of these races. Um, but that isn't like a measurement, you know. I'm, I'm just like too focused on what I do. My opinion uh, is that everything that is exciting, that is uh, new in aviation, we should give it a chance, you know. And I mean, there's so much room for shows, for, for all kinds of races that... Uh, 
basically we just help each other because interest grows and and knowing that the area is the most I would say professional and most uh, well thought through one because as I said before everything is like 100% sports and sports are interested and sports uh, uh, will survive you know it's it's not so much about the show it's more about this about the sports and who is the better one out there and that's what people. That's in what people are more interested in uh, long-term-wise. All those other things, I mean, it depends on the quality. And as I said, if they can deliver quality, they will survive. If not, it just stays in the airshow for a couple of years, and then it will go down again. But at the end, if they survive, it's just good for us, because every, every exciting race, every exciting airshow is good for aviation, so it's good for us. Part of the success of any team is, of course, the fact you've got a team. So um, I understand you've got uh, Don Vito as your technician. Uh, we, we already know Claudia Maurer as your coordinator. Um, are they the two main people other than yourself and the team? Um, who else is there? That's correct. I mean, there's another new member of the team from this year on. He's called Peter uh, Lytle. Peter Lytle is uh, an engineer, aerodynamic engineer, who is, interesting why is not working or 70% of his time not working as an aerodynamic guy. He's responsible for all the data management. And we started this year with our data, data management system. It's kind of like what they use in Formula One. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we want to know about our flights. We want to record data to learn about those things uh, to be able in the future, like next year or the year after, to implement those informations we got into our tactics. And uh, that means an early start to be ahead of the game. And he's responsible for all those data. What kind of data are you capturing? Are, are you able to tell us the kind of parameters that you're getting during the flight? Yeah, I mean, I get uh, basically all aircraft data. I have uh, all the data from my uh, radars, like elevators and ailerons and radars, how much I, I use them, how many degrees, uh, when exactly, what time I get to camera angles, I have all my um, engine data, so I have G speeds, all kind of speeds. I have also track positions. We are still working on that because there is like an IMU in there combined with the GPS. So finally, we do our own studies of the track, which uh, should help us in the future. It doesn't still work because it's lots of development work. Yep. It's the same what the organization did. We are just doing it for ourselves now that we are independent. All right, Hannes. Well, uh, we really appreciate the uh, huge amount of time that you've given us here. That's been fantastic, and uh, we've really enjoyed the insight that uh, talking to yourself and the other Red Bull Air Race pilots that we've interviewed on our program. It's it's a, it's just really really interesting to uh, find out about the science as well as the personalities flying the plane. You as we said, we're well, third in the championship, and you're only one point behind uh, Nigel Lamb at the moment. So uh, things are really tight. So we uh, we certainly wish you all the best for the rest of the season. Oh, thank you very much, guys. And as I said, I think it's really cool if we got guys like you guys who are going more into details, treating that like a sport and showing it to the people that it's not just an airshow, it's a serious game we're playing. And I think that helps all of us. So thanks a lot. Great job from your side. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And uh, we, we hope to talk to you again sometime in, in the future. Sure, anytime. <laughs> I'm Matt Hall. Hi, I'm Matt Hall. I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. Everyone wants to be Australia's champion Red Bull Air Race pilot, and now you can own a piece of Matt Hall memorabilia. Polos, t-shirts and caps for all shapes and sizes can be found at matthallracing.com. Just go to the online store and you too can be in the loop. Hello, I'm Matt Hall. (laughs) 
Flight experience 556, you're cleared for takeoff. Imagine sitting in a pilot seat, flying past Sydney Harbour Bridge or the Eiffel Tower and landing at just about any airport. It's not just a flying experience, it's flight experience. From the roar of the engines to stunning realistic visuals, flight experience puts you in control of a 737 flight simulator. It's so real your senses actually believe you're flying. For a gift that's really unique, get a voucher online at flightexperience.com.au or call 1-800-737-800. Flight experience, the ultimate flying experience. Hello everybody, this is Robert Sigliano from the new Pilot Pod Blog, the aviation podcast from the perspective of a new private pilot. So come join me on my journey as I transition from a student pilot to a private pilot. I will be discussing my goals for my first 100 hours, my flights, my adventures, my successes and failures. I have also thrown in a few interviews as well. So check me out in iTunes or at the new Pilot Pod Blog, the blogspot.com. On Twitter as New Pilot Podblog or on my transponder as LI Pilot. Pilot Stu here from the Pilot's Journey Podcast. You're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, where it's what's down under that counts. Now back to Grant and Steve, the masters of sound effects. Okay, so I'm here with uh, Angie Marino down at uh, Turidan. A- Angie is the Operations Manager of Oz Air Services uh, down here at the Turidan Flying School. Angie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on today. The first question we've really got is regarding Turidan Airport. This is uh, pretty well situated on the coast. It's got a few uh, runways and a few aircraft here. Can, can you tell us about uh, Turidan Airport? It's been running since about the 1970s. Uh, it was originally called Harewood Airport. Uh, it's gone through a few changes and it's definitely been updated since that time. We recently started, uh, we, well, we took over the uh, air school and the flying school and that's what we've been doing for the past two months. So it's been a big learning curve for everybody, but we're getting there. It's, it's going pretty well. Now I understand based out of here, we've got the um, commando skydivers here. Uh, we've got yourself, the Turidan Flying School and, and Aus Air Services. We've also got the Wings and Fins restaurant and I understand that the uh, some of the oil rig super pumas are based here as well. They are. Uh, we do have the choppers flying out to the rigs, although that sort of happens mainly during the week, so we don't really see those those happen often whilst we're here. Yeah, it make, makes it fun in the circuit because they're pretty huge. <laughs> yeah. Can you give us a little background on the flying school and, and do you know what its history was like before you took it over? The flying school has been running, I think, for about 15 years, and we've just taken it over with the existing students and just sort of done a few upgrades, trying to spread the awareness and really sort of put flying out there for younger people as well to draw them in because I think that's really important you know um, you can start flying when you're 15 which is you know something that's really special I suppose to students when they have their flying license before they have their driver's license and yeah it's a really good way for students um, even as a gateway into a career or even if it's just for a hobby into general aviation you know it's a good good place to start with the recreational yeah, now, now you folks train, you train and recreational, but you also have charter and joy flights available, yeah? That's right. We um, we run adventure flights, and that's with a tiger moth, and uh, we have the jabaroos here, which are for the recreational um, flying lessons, and we also do have the charter flights. We have a Cessna uh, that flies out to Flinders Island, and we organise fishing trips with that, so it's, it's a big hit amongst the boys, of course, <laughs> you know, boys weekend away up to Flinders Island, which is, yep. which is an an incredible place and um, that's what yeah and about how many students have you got and how many um, jabberoos have you got for the recreational recreational aviation training we have four jabberoos and we have 
about 60 to 80 students. What made you guys decide to buy the flying school? I started lessons here uh, last year in June and I was really enjoying myself and it just happened to be that the the flying school went onto the market um, a few months ago and my father decided it would be a good opportunity perhaps to to purchase it and it's a good investment and so he did and um, not long after he bought it he sort of went off to Europe on on a work work sort of trip and thought and just said to me, here Ange, have a go and take it over so it's it's been a, a bit of a learning curve for me having to do things that I've never done before but everyone here is so helpful and yeah. you know we all really just stick together and are trying to make things yeah. make things work so it's it's been really fun I've been really enjoying it excellent now is your father a pilot no he's not okay. uh, he he did dabble in in lessons some years back but with work commitments he was unable to you know fulfill the, the license but but you're stepping into that uh, role as a pilot i am um my eventual goal is to be able to fly my family to flinders island so yeah it could take a few years i'll get there eventually uh, a few years because where are you at at the moment i've done about 40 hours and my first solo took place last week and i'm still too chicken to go on my second one but i'll get there <laughs> I'll get there. <laughs> what are the plans for expansion, uh, Angie? Are you going to have like a flying club here or it's obviously, I often see this as a, a bit of a, a wasted resource down here. Like this could be such a bigger operation if there was the right operator that could do it. Do you have plans to do that sort of stuff here or just stick with the flying school for now? We do have, uh, absolutely, we do have plans for expansion. We're currently um, researching different schools to go out to and do some presentations for and perhaps, you know, like I said, spread the awareness for, for the younger generation because really, I mean, they're where we headed we're also trying to organize a bit of a social club for students to get together and you know have a few drinks and discuss you know where they're at and how they feel about flying because I think a social aspect of it is really helpful especially when we come back from our lesson and you know we everyone does enjoy asking oh you know how'd you go and how did you feel up there and and so so the social club is something that we're that we're also looking at and this Saturday is our is our opening so that's another another way that we're you know again spreading the awareness that Yes, we're a new new business and we've just, you know, recently renovated so we're on to onto bigger things and better things. Okay, so so who's on your team? If you want to give us the name of your team, uh, we have Gordon Brown who takes care of all the charter uh, the charter flights and taking you to Flinders Island for some fishing. We have Ian Loveridge is our chief flying instructor, and under him uh, there's the senior flying instructors. That's Ryan Epstein, Jim Duff, Steve Vandervelden, Laurie Jones, and Christoph Fuye. And the Tiger Moth pilot is Nick Robertson. Cool. And there is me in the office with Jennifer Johnson. And we sort of, you know, do all the uh, back of house things yeah. like paperwork and wages and all that sort of all thing. All the important bits. All the important bits, that's <laughs> right. As a, as a group, you know, we try to, try to all help each other, though. It's not sort of just, you know, one person does one specific thing. Everyone's sort of in there helping yeah. each other. Everyone chips in. Yeah, that's right. All right, now, Angie, anybody that's come up the uh, South Gippsland Highway here and they've... Uh, happen to as I always do look at the airport and look past there's one really interesting feature of this airport and that's of course an old looks like a beached fishing trawl that's uh, parked at one side of the runway can you tell us a bit of the history of that perhaps that one's been a bit of a mystery to everybody uh, as I as I know it was used years and years ago whilst they were dredging the Yarra River and what they would do they would um, get all the sand and the muck off the Yarra River and onto the boat take it out to sea and dump it there and when once that was done uh, the owner wanted to moor it at Hastings to do some work on it to sort of renovate it uh, he wasn't able to leave it there so they bring it up to Turidan and as uh, he started doing the work he sort of just gave up walked off and it's just sat there ever since 
did it did it get blown in or has the land just encroached on it because it's it's quite well landlocked in dunes now it is i think i i suppose as the years have passed it's kind of become part of the uh, it, it, it looks like scenery, yeah i think all the plants have just sort of taken it on board <laughs> it, it just looks like it got blown and beached by a big storm or something because it's quite a, it's quite away from the edge of the marshes and so on it yeah, looks like yeah it, it definitely is now do you folks do much do you have much interaction with the commando skydivers besides sharing a couple of drinks not really too much although i am planning on doing a jump um, for my sister's birthday in October so that's that's something we're really looking forward to but um, it's it's so uh, wonderful to have them here because on weekends it really sort of um, the atmosphere is just incredible with all the planes going the tigers going and the the people falling out of the sky it really you know (laughs) it it really um, yeah makes it makes it so lively here on the weekends so it's yeah it's great to have them here and I suppose vice versa Mm. Uh, that's awesome. So we've been talking a lot on our show about the, the differences and, and, and the shift towards RAOs planes versus GA. Are you finding that the RA planes here, the Jabiroos, are more popular with people coming in to fly, particularly uh, you know, first-time flyers, or do you think that they're sort of evenly spread between that and GA? Um, I'd say they are evenly spread. A lot of the planes that do come in here for just you know the touch-and-goes or just a few circuits are either the Jabiroos or the Cessnas. Yeah, we we mainly most of our traffic comes from Morabin or Tayab, so I suppose they're the smaller airports, and so that's what that's what we mainly see here. Just people doing a few circuits and touch and goes. Tayab's just a few minutes away by air, and that place has got hangars and uh, a bit of a warbird community and things like that. How do you find yourselves going? Do you feel like you're in the shadow of Tayab, or uh, are you offering a service that's different to what they do? How, how do you interact or feel that you interact with Tayab? We don't feel uh, shattered by Tayab at all. I suppose they are a bigger airport, and so therefore I suppose they're in a different almost different league to us because we are quite a bit smaller so uh yeah i mean it's it's so personal everybody knows everyone's name and you know when it's someone's birthday and everyone knows everyone's progress as well so i guess it's it's more of a um personal experience here when students come out to learn you know we haven't had any problems whatsoever with with anybody from from tyab i mean yeah they uh they had their air show a few Oh, about a month ago now, I think, and so many of our um, students or our licensed students went went to the air show, and you know, I think instead of sort of battling with each other, I think it really, we really need to support each other because it is one big in- industry. It's not just you know each for themselves. And I think like that, like we are with the skydivers, you know, we do help each other, we advertise for each other, and I think in the long run that makes it a, a lot better for students and people who are you know thinking about getting in into the industry. You said you got a lot of traffic here. I mean, I know when I come and do my touch and goes. I'm trying to get current as I've been doing over the last far too long. Um, we come down here and do touch and goes. You find a lot of Moravian traffic comes down here. Yeah, we do have a lot of uh, people calling up for permission to land, and they just do they they do their touch and goes. They sometimes go over to the, um, French Island and you know do do a few things down there and do a few circuits. But you know, come here for a coffee and yeah some crayfish. Well, it's a good way to break things up, drop into the restaurant, have a coffee, things like that. Now, now this is a permission-based airstrip. You can't just suddenly turn up, broadcast and say, hey, I'm coming in to do a touch of go, isn't it? Yeah, you do have to call the office um, and ask for permission to land, but, I mean, it's always okay to, to land here. So, yeah, we just prefer it that way, just just so we know. And if 
there's anything unexpe- unexpected, we can you know sort of yeah. deal with the problem quite efficiently. Most of my flying was done over in the United States, and it's a different culture over there. One of the things you see a lot of over there is what you're seeing here right now. We're just looking around at uh, the setup you've got here, and there's tea and coffee available and all that sort of stuff. So I'm really encouraged to see that that's the sort of atmosphere that you're trying to generate here. So I find that a really positive thing. Uh, folks, if you get down here and have a look, they've got uh, nice new floorboards down, and it's all looking very swish in there. So it's uh, well worth flying in, and it's it's really a convenient airport, isn't it? It's somewhere where you can just drop in. It's right on the ramp, and it's it's you can just drop in and have a coffee. And we're finding that a lot of people do come into the office and sort of are looking around with their mouths sort of open, going, "Oh wow, you know, this has been such a big change." And you know, with the tea and coffee and the biscuits and that sort of thing, it, it's really good to just um, when people do come in, you know, have a sit down, have a little read. We have you know books to read and so, a, a space where people can really relax and sort of take it all. And it's also nice to just look out and watch the planes flying around. And yeah, it's it, it, again like it's a real social sort of atmosphere that we're trying to create so it generates conversation and therefore you know interest and awareness so do you know if the airport charges for touch and goes or for full landings or things like that uh to my understanding there is a fee but the owners of the airfield would have to be contacted to find out what the fee is steve you've you've done touch and goes why do they charge you uh, back at the your school yeah it's about eight dollars for a touch and go I assume it's the same for a full stop, but normally we just uh, touch on the ground and take straight back off again. But yeah, I believe it's eight dollars. He's obviously never seen my touch and goes. It's touch, touch. Oh God, touch. Oh God, go, 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 go. go. There we go. <laughs> yeah, I get, I get charged twenty-eight landings for one touch and go. <laughs> if anyone's interested in contacting you guys and having a chat and seeing what's going on, where, what's the best ways of getting in touch with you? The best way would be to either call the office on zero three five double nine eight three seven double one or check out our website it's ozairservices.com.au you'll be able to find all the information that you're that you're needing uh, we would like to see as many people come through and even if it's just to have a look at the office and the renovations and you know have a drink with us that would be great cool angie thank you very much for being with us thank you for having me Okay, folks, I'm here with Richard Turnbull. He's a hot air balloon pilot. Uh, He's from the UK, but he's been working out here with Picture This Ballooning for a little while. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to have a chance to have a chat with him. Let's talk about your background in aviation, how you got into all the different types of ballooning, what you've flown and things like that. Well, I suppose it all started great many years ago with my father. He was the original balloon examiner in the UK, having been in the RAF. And he became that because a gentleman bought a balloon from the States and it was delivered to him. And in the top of one of the cylinders, there was a postcard with six points on how to fly a hot air balloon, point number six being good luck. (laughs) So (laughs) he rang up the air ministry and said, is there anybody that can teach me how to fly this thing? And they said, yep, there's a wing commander who does balloons. And so got in contact with him and it went on from there. So that, that was really the start of it, I suppose. I did my first flight at age of six in a gas balloon with my sister as the pilot on Battle of Britain Day or out of RAF Abingdon in uh, Oxfordshire. And then I went along with a family, did a whole lot of things like that. There was a bit of a gap when I saw a few interesting things happening. A balloon exploded in front of me, a gas balloon, which wasn't very inspiring at the time. And then my sister was very seriously injured in a hot air balloon accident, a very early cloud hopper. So I didn't do much ballooning until I was then 16, when I started again and got bitten by the bug, got my license when I was on my 17th, just after my 17th birthday. And then I've carried on since then. The first three or four years I did as a private pilot, which was great fun. And then, um, as is the way of things, I wasn't going to be a balloonist. No, I was going to be a soldier, but that didn't work out. So um, I ended up being a co-pilot for a hot air airship up in Scotland. 
pure nepotism. My father was the main pilot. They needed an extra pilot, so that worked out nicely. And then after that, that was that stopped in about eighty seven at the. Uh, no, 86, sorry, and at end of 86 I came out to Australia for the first time and worked with Peter Vizard at Berlin Loft, uh, primarily to fly a hot air airship that he had bought and had advertising on out here, but also doing passenger work for him in uh, Camden, Hunt Valley, Benalla, what have you, okay. in Canberra. Um, I was out here for two years, went back to UK and then was employed again on the strength of my hot air airship pilot licence, or pilot endorsement, should I say, uh, with Flying Pictures who were quite a major company in UK at the time, and I was with them for seven years. Then they had a bit of a hiatus and said that uh, myself and my girlfriend were no longer needed, so I just went down the road to a company called Air to Air, who had a special-shaped balloon in the shape of a pylon, which needed a pilot for that season. They said, yep, brilliant, come on board. A week later, Flying Pictures came back to me and said, we've just got a huge contract, can you come back? And I said, no, I've been employed by somebody else. <laughs> Oops, oops. So <laughs> then Air to Air were, in effect, bought out by Virgin Airship oh, and Balloon okay. Company. Yeah. So I was with them for seven years. The, the, the inevitable question, did you get to meet the man? Oh, yes. We got to meet the man on a on fairly regular basis, really, because he would always come along and uh, we'd inflate the balloon and he'd step into it. He'd smile at the cameras, turn the burner on, not look where the burner was going, burn a big hole in it and then hop out and wander away and then we'd be left to pack it up. So... <laughs> But, you know, you know. <laughs> well, when you're the owner of the Virgin Group, you're allowed to. But doesn't Richard Branson have a hot air balloon license? Oh, absolutely. He's actually taught to fly by um, Robin Batchelor, who oh. was one of the directors of Flying Pictures, because the original Virgin contract was with Flying Pictures, and then it went to Virgin Airship Balloon Company, or the Airship and Balloon Company that then became the Virgin, Virgin Airship Balloon Company. And, of course, we were involved in the round-the-world stuff. Yep. which was great fun because uh, from my point of view I was one of the pilots that did some of the long distance test flying for the uh, Rosier balloons that they were using yep. so we went out to America to Reno uh, yep. to Stead Aerodrome flew from there up into Idaho and uh, across into Utah and what have you all 24 hour flights to get the day night day expansion and contraction of helium um, so they were all great fun and then unfortunately Virgin fell by the wayside as things do and the remnants of Virgin then operated a very small company, just went back to be calling it, called the Airship Balloon Company. And uh, what did I do with them? Oh yes, they just had a, a round balloon for an electricity company in Europe, which was yeah. fine, it was a 105. Oh, and a really nice 42 as well, which was one of the best balloons I've ever flown, with a little basket. Small. Yeah, that's tiny. Two cylinders and you in this little basket. Oh, wow. Don't have to care about passengers or anything like that. Fly along, crash in a big heap, absolutely great fun. <laughs> Um, and then they have the Churchill Dog. Now, Churchill is an insurance company yep. in the UK, and their mascot is this big bulldog. Yep. So they had a special-shaped balloon built by Lindstrand Balloons of the bulldog. And I flew that for three years. Cool. And he, he was quite heavy, I seem to remember, a bit of a handful, but kids loved him and the public loved him. Oh, he was yeah. a great character. And then, subsequent to that, that company then disappeared slightly, and I was with a friend of mine who was the um, press officer for Virgin, who got his own contract with a tiny little building society called the Stroud and Swindon Building Society. But they went the whole hog and had a 77 and a special shape house. So I did uh, three years with them, and that was great fun. And then let's see what happened then. Oh yeah, the recession hit, that's oh. right. And then I spent last year working on a roof of a medieval manor house. <laughs> <laughs> No, Which, no flying at all, huh? Uh, only private flying. Towards the end of the year, actually, I did pick up a, a, a little bit of work. And then I got the call from uh, Australia um, asking me, did I like tampons? <laughs> and I said, uh, I'm not sure why. Damien said, because uh, I think you will. And it turned out we had a special shape 
tampon box to fly. <laughs> so I came out to Australia and we did a four month tour with a tampon box. And it's, it's, yeah, it's one of the strangest things I've ever seen being made into a special shape. I've seen all sorts of humans, vehicles, bumblebees, you name it, have been made into even houses into special shapes, but I've never seen a box of tampons. Well, that's right. Um, superficially, there it is, just a box. But as soon as you put the logo on it and all the writing and yeah. people look at it and go, what's that? And you tell them it's called the Lucky Box. Yeah. It usually yeah. makes them fall apart laughing. Yeah. Um, but no, apparently it was a very, very successful campaign for Libra. And in fact, tomorrow we're going to take it out and uh, tether it at the Maya Music Bowl for the uh, fun run that's going through Melbourne. So yes, that's, uh, it's all go, basically. And then I'm back home to fly a special shape motorbike. Yeah, now this this motorbike. Now I uh, we were talking before off before we started recording about the uh, I, I used to be crew chief on the Formula One racing car balloon here in Australia, and that was uh, about 360 kilos uh, with uh, big four tires that used to get cold and all that. But uh, tell us how heavy this one is. Well, this one comes in the bag at 562 kilos. We're going to have some fun with it. I'm not sure how practical it is to actually operate, but we shall find out over the next couple of months. We, we had a heck of a time um, setting up, packing away, and also flying the 360 kilo racer and so this is quite odd to have a two-wheel vehicle heavier than a four-wheel <laughs> it is really isn't it but uh it shouldn't be too uh, it shouldn't be too bad he said hopefully we're gonna have four crew and myself and a winch system and also out of a tracked um automated wheelbarrow that in europe they call them hookies but they're uh, they run a little honda engine and so you put a big box on the front of them, so you're not doing as much lifting as you would have to do with a normal balloon, hopefully. Nice theory. <laughs> nice theory, yeah, I'll let you know in two months' time. <laughs> so you're flying the motorbike for how long? Well, it's got 30 days to do this season, okay. uh, so not many days. So apart from that, there's also a company called Red Road that have a 105. They're a building company in the UK. They have about 20, 25 days to do. And also there's a new box, which I think is to do with um, a, a supermarket, Okay. So a few days to do with that, and then hopefully that might take me to the end of the season, end of October or so in the UK, when I believe I'm coming back to Australia again. Oh, follow the sun, as the phrase goes. Well, I hope so. <laughs> so in a, in a nutshell, about how many years in balloons and about how many hours do you think? Well, in February of this year, I realised I'd had my licence for 30 years, which is a little bit of a depressing thought, or does <laughs> it make me senior? I'm not sure. And e Experienced, experienced. Oh, experienced, of course, yes. And hours-wise, um, just over 2,000 now. Because with hot air airships, interestingly enough, you don't do that many hours because they're quite uh, badly affected by wind and we used to spend a lot of time going backwards. So, <laughs> so yeah, only just over 2,000, about 2,300 hours. Okay, cool. Anything else you'd like to say while we're here? Not really, I don't think, apart from I had a wonderful time in Australia as usual and uh, looking forward to coming back again. Thanks, Richard. Appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you. Sitting in my little apartment in Hamburg, I reflected on the adage, getting there is half the fun. You see, I've used Emirates several times before on journeys to Europe, and whilst most of the previous flights were good, I was curious to find out if competition, economic uncertainties, or just plain belt tightening had lowered their standards. And I was pleasantly surprised. Hi, I'm Anthony Simmons, and this is The View From The Lounge. I've got close family in Germany and the UK and so try to visit whenever possible. I go out of my way to fly Emirates because I've usually utilised their services and they're not a bad bunch. They've certainly expanded their network since I first came over. I now fly direct from Dubai to Hamburg and I avoid Dusseldorf or Frankfurt and the three hour train trip. 
Also avoided is a stopover in Singapore, which makes the overall trip several hours shorter, but does mean the first leg is a 14-hour marathon from Melbourne to Dubai. Check-in was painless enough, boarding commenced bang on time, and we took to the skies as close to departure time as makes no difference. I couldn't catch the make or model of the aircraft, but to this untrained eye, it wasn't showing any undue wear and tear. The seats looked newish, or maybe just newishly upholstered, and comfortable, with enough tilt for me to catch a few Zs. Yet, I top out at 5 foot 7.5 in the old money, and tip the scales at about 65 kilograms, 10 stone. And by the time we'd landed, I was feeling a wee bit pretzel-like. I wouldn't want to be as tall as Steve and do a long haul like that in cattle class. With the general populace getting bigger, I can't help but wonder if airlines will need to create a bit more space in between the rows for comfort's sake, or to shamelessly paraphrase Alexander McCall Smith, will the more traditionally built traveller have to pay more? She was a night flight, so pretty much as soon as the angle of incline started to ease off, it was into the apres skis and break out the chuck wagons. Now airlines, with some justification, cop a bit of stick over the quantity and quality of the food they serve, yet I was more than happy. The options for the mains were varied enough to satisfy most palates, and whilst Michelin won't be handing out a star or two just yet, the food was flavoursome and ample. I was impressed by the flight and cabin crew. The boys in the cockpit, an Englishman and South African by the sounds of things, did a sterling job updating us on the progress of the flight, weather conditions and associated stuff. The cabin crew again amazed me in their professionalism and breadth of nationalities and languages. Every time I fly, it seems that Emirates is becoming more and more a United Nations of the sky than a state-specific carrier. It was an uneventful landing, and then three hours in Dubai. The relatively new third terminal, I believe, is the express domain of Emirates, and it is cavernous. Between disembarking and finding the next departure gate, I needed just about every minute to traverse the building, with a pint of the black stuff and a fag thrown in. A few more of those horizontal travelator numbers wouldn't go astray. Once again, the whole boarding operation for the flight to Hamburg was smoothly carried out. Being a morning departure, 0900 UAE time, the food was more snack light meal variety, but still no complaints or food poisoning. I did pay attention and noticed we were flying in a Boeing 777-300. No idea how old or new or whether it's cursed or not. Its designation was Alpha 6 Echo Mike Uniform. As every good Aussie would note, I was flying on the emu. Ironically, the large flightless bird on the right of the Australian coat of arms. As a useless observation on the left is a kangaroo, and it gives us the dubious distinction of being the only country on the face of the planet that eats its own national emblems. Before the emails and thread entries come flooding in saying, oh infrequent flyer, this is just an unashamed Emirates love fest, they're not perfect. I'm happy to detail praise where it's due and try to be constructive in criticism. So without too many details, the experience travelling with an eight-month-old was less than satisfactory, such to the point I gave serious consideration to never using their services again. A lost luggage episode that, despite some major euros being thrown in my direction, I contemplated the same. Minor bugbears I can deal with. It's called life, and neither humans nor computers are infallible. So-called acts of God are by their very nature out of any individual's direct control. Currently being in Europe during one of the coldest snaps in a decade, I know this only too well. Emirates have long had a reputation for quality service, and on the whole, I'm inclined to agree that that reputation is deserved. Problems will arise and mistakes made when you're moving ever-increasing numbers of passengers around the world. I've had hassles, and I've had incident-free trips. 
I've experienced much worse with other carriers I will not name. So while my opinion is the service is good as always, they're not getting off totally scot-free. I'm burning up some points and flying home business. That will test them. Can't wait to see the view from that lounge. Ah, business. Break out the bubbly. Mile High Flyers promo, take 229. Cue music, action. Hank here, wanting to tell all the listeners of Playing Crazy from Down Under about the Mile High Flyers. Mile High Flyers? What the hell is that? Is that some sort Cut. of crazy sex Cut. club? I can't be promoting Hank, that crap. No, Mile High Flyers are an aviation podcast based in the Mile High City. Try it again. Mile High Flyers promo, take 230. Cue music, action. Hank here, wanting to tell all the Playing Crazy listeners Cut. about the Cut. Mile High Flyers. That would be Plain Crazy Down Under podcast listeners. Try it again from the top. Mile High Flyers promo, take 231. Cue music, action. Hank here, wanting to tell all the listeners of Plain Crazy Down Under about the Mile High Flyers. Kill the music. I think you've had too many beers. You better take a break. I'll see if we can fix this in post. Looking for a studio to record your next project? From recording and song production to music videos, disc duplication, and DVD presentation kits designed to get you noticed. Audiovisual Media is more than just a recording studio. It's a complete solution for musicians with recording and music video packages available. Record your next project at Audiovisual Media and score free studio time. To find out how, visit our website at www.audiovisualmedia.com.au or call us on 04 Want to advertise your business on the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast? Scripts and Voices has teamed up with the boys at Plain Crazy Down Under to bring you an exclusive offer. Scripts and Voices can make your ad to feature on this podcast at a specially reduced cost. That includes writing your ad, voiceover, backing music and production. To get your ad made in time for the next podcast, check out scriptsandvoices.com. Follow the link and send us an email. For advertising rates and packages, please see the Plane Crazy Down Under website. Well, folks, for many people in Australia uh, who fly or are involved in some way with aviation, it's not uncommon to encounter a cartoon strip known as Swamp, cut out and stuck up on the walls of various uh, flight schools and places like that and cubicles and various aviation organisations. And uh, today we're fortunate to have Gary Clark, the creator of Swamp, and we're going to have a chat with him about the uh, the cartoon, its inspiration, and uh, how it's been uh, helped by his flying. So, Gary, welcome to the show, mate. Oh, thanks, guys. Welcome. It's good to be here. Okay. Well, first of all, Gary, do you um, do you want to tell us a bit about uh, what Swamp is for, for the people who have never seen any Swamp cartoons and uh, what the inspiration was for it? Okay, it's a, a daily cartoon strip piece in newspapers around Australia and overseas. It's also a Sunday cartoon strip, and uh, it's based around creatures from my childhood when I grew up around a little suburb in the Brisbane called the Grange, which was full of creeks and lagoons and, and parks and lots of trees and things. So we had a lot of adventure playing around those things. And so when I went through art school, I got very inspired to do cartoons. I started doodling ducks. I don't know why, but. <laughs> ducks and frogs, and then and then eventually you know, crocodiles, and, and one thing led to another, and eventually I, I had to try and make cartoon characters different from each other. So I, this little character called Ding appeared, who was just to be different. He couldn't fly, so that's that's what the strip's about. And it's about um, 
the themes that run through this, this one pretty much everyday themes of life, but there are definite aviation themes I throw through those characters like Ding and the Hedgehog Controller and, and the Flying <laughs> School. But also I've got wild ducks that ride Harleys and, and I've got um, rats that live in a dump, so that's about teenage life, um, cleaning up bedrooms and things. So I throw a whole bunch of characters into different settings and they become kind of the themes, different themes I run through. So, But aviation is definitely one big major theme because there's swamp actually. I've got a map I've drawn of it and it's actually got two runways uh, and in the middle of that is the air traffic control tower. So it's all about this particular life around. It's built around an airfield and a swamp where ducks come and go and all the other characters as well. Yes, uh, Ding the Duck is a, is definitely a favourite. He's uh, perpetually trying to take off and so on. It's, it's great. Oh, good. Yeah, he's not... Exactly, not my favourite. Is I like him sometimes, but um, yeah. he's such a dud. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I think, well, man, man yeah, just, but uh, that's who he is. And uh, but what he is, what he has got about him is he's, he perseveres. I think that's a good trait. Yes, not, not all of us succeed in in life, and but uh, he succeeds in, in persevering. So that's this good trait. But uh, sometimes I'd like him to fly, and but I, I use other ducks for that kind of uh, that kind of theme. Yeah, I've, I've noticed there was one where um, he winds up uh, by balloons or something like that, fl- uh, flying above the clouds, and and it yeah. was all a dream. <laughs> yeah, that, that, the, the dream was an afterthought because I actually had him pretty much flying. I thought, oh, gee, he can't fly. That'll be the end of his. That'll be the end of Ding Duck. So I better <laughs> make it a dream. You know, I chicken out basically. So but one day, one day he will, and that's yeah. um, because I've got an, I've I've got a pilot's license of sorts. I've got a restricted license. Have it for, had it for twenty odd years. I've always said once I've finished my license, if I ever do, then Ding will finish his, and he'll get his. Oh, cool! Weeks. So <laughs> I, I'm still going, you know. So. Well, there was, there was the classic one of Ding approaching his study for flying his homework, and he's like, "Yep, there it is. There's my homework. I'm about to start." And all of a sudden, there's this crack, and a big chasm appears between him and his study, yep. and. That very much epitomizes. I'm, I'm, I've got some study to do for a license at the moment, and, and every time I go to do it, something comes up. So it was, yeah. it was brilliant. I think well, we I'm from the, that probably the world's worst student, so that's where that comes from too. So it's all, <laughs> all life. You you said you've you've got a pilot's license of sorts. So do you want to tell us about your where? What made you want to learn to fly? Actually, inspiration for both drawing and flying come from my dad, and uh, dad um, sat me on his lap one day when I was about four and he drew it's a really great I can still remember it a great drawing of an airport with the old igloo hangers and a couple of DC-3s at the front and I was really impressed by his drawing but also this aircraft thing becomes something that I hooked onto too but also we lived on an aircraft lane and every time not not every second time but every time an aircraft flew over which was every you know every few minutes pretty much Dad would race at the front yard and watch the DC-3 or the Fogger Friendship or whatever go past and I'd join him so for years we just spent Race back and forth, racing outside the, uh, the house, watching his aircraft. So I got pretty much hooked on flying. And then cool. when I was at high school, Dad took up, uh, uh, went for his pilot's license, went solo. And then at the same time, I, I started art school uh, after high school. And uh, one of our first drawing assignments was to draw this massively big glider from a QIT gliding club, a glider called a Bosian, which some people might know about. I think it had about a 60-foot wingspan thereabouts. Wow. Very big. And I joined that club, and um, they let Dad in as well. And uh, we started learning to fly gliders, and we were involved in that sport for about eight or more years and had a fantastic time flying gliders. Um, so, but later on, um, when I couldn't keep, when I was married, I couldn't keep up the, the uh, what's basically a, a um, bachelor lifestyle of being away every weekend all day for <laughs> flying purposes. Uh, I couldn't keep up the currency enough that I felt I was safe, so I had to stop gliding and took up power flying because that was only half an hour's drive away and I could I worked out I was saying three hours commitment per per lesson including driving time there and back and post-flight and pre-flight briefings and so I thought I could 
keep that up fairly well. And I can do it midweek too, so I took up power flying, and uh, but greatly missed the gliding and the, the sport that is. Okay. Was Twenty odd years ago. Where, so were you doing powered flight at Archerfield? No, I, I started at Redcliffe, which is pretty okay. much like a swamp. You know, you take your <laughs> fast ducks. And, yes, <laughs> yes. And it was kind of very homey. It was a great little airstrip, and uh, it's become a bit, a bit more professional and and. Uh, and, su- and successful, but it was really homey and a lovely place to learn. It was a great atmosphere. Yep. Still is. I still visit on occasion, and uh, so that's where I started. Then I went solo in, in Cessnas and got my aerobatic rating and a tail dragger endorsement, and did cool. whatever whatever I could uh, short of getting a full license because I I flunked that lesson or that that exam by one question. Oh no! Uh, uh, was some you know, one of those ones that really could have gone either way. So uh, and I picked the wrong way, and I couldn't get back to study for about a year, and I just lost momentum and uh, and just kept on puddling around with with uh, around the local training area, and that's what I could do with taking friends up and and that's sort of all the time I have anyway. But um, in the meantime, I I've changed over to uh, recreational. Yeah. I got sick of flying Cessnas, and much as they're a great a great trainer and a good aircraft, I wanted something a bit more. A bit different, just something, just a change. And I discovered Technam Sierra, which is like a little sports yes. car. Yep. Yep. And, a, and and very much the feel of a glider. And I love the feel of it. It's just got this lovely touch, stick and rudder aircraft. And uh, it just felt just like the gliders used to fly the old fabulous ones. And uh, so I took over, or took up flying the recreational and love it. So it suits. I'm a recreational, recreational pilot. I only get a chance to fly once every blue moon or weekends. So it suits my um, environment. I don't think I could keep up currency if I had a a uh, full license. I think I yeah. want to fly more regularly than, than once every four or five weeks to keep sort of open open license currency. But for a training area, I know the training area, and I think it's current stuff for that stuff. So how's the yeah. um, how's the RAOs seen up up that part of uh, up where you are? Is it uh, we're, we're noticing a big shift towards it down here in uh, Victoria? Uh, I assume it's the yeah. same same case up there. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah, it is. I think because um, a lot of people people that flew flew GA and flew Cessnas were just recreational pilots, but yeah. now they've got their own recreational organisation and their own range of aircraft that suit them down to the ground and, and slightly cheaper mm-hmm. and it's, it's not you're not tied up to all the, the GA stuff but also it, it counts towards GA if you ever decide to step up again back up to GA and, and go through that so it, it's you know, a lot of recreational pilots are finding that's where they that's where they always were at and that they found the aircraft and the organisation that suits now yeah no when you were saying you were just taking the odd friend and going into the training area I was going to ask if you'd considered it so it's great to hear that you're You've switched over. It's, it's it's definitely the way to go if you're not if you're not wanting to take multiple people or um, or you know have a twin or really punch through clouds or things like that. RA mm. is just brilliant. Yeah, it's it's quite great and it, it widens my training area that I used to fly in and I can yep. land in places and things. So it's uh, just opened up a bit more freedom and, and uh, different scenery for me to fly in and and I usually only take one person at a time anyway. You can't find many friends to come up that regularly, so you know, usually <laughs> just one one's enough. It's, it's just Plenty, so uh, that's, you don't want to put someone in the back seat. That's, that's no fun. Yeah, not not in a Cessna 172, which is you know really designed for two people plus your luggage. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, <laughs> I've been in the back of them a few times. Yeah, they're <laughs> good fun. But yeah. <laughs> so um, when you did your gliding, you were mostly on the fiberglass ones. Did you ever fly a Blanick? I flew, did my first loop in a Blanick uh, with yeah. uh, another pilot named Andrew Sinclair, who was a um, Royal Navy Skyhawk pilot. So he did the, perform the loop. That was my first experience of aerobatics ever, um, which was great. Yep. Apparently he was known to do inverted uh, inverted um, circuits in a blank, but don't tell anybody. Whereabouts were you doing? Well, we did this at a, at a comp up at up at Warwick, but he, from, he was from somewhere else, um, okay. and he he flew. Apparently, he eventually crashed a Skyhawk into the sea, but ejected safely, and then ended up going to the Royal Navy and flew uh, Harriers. Oh, Very right. good pilot, yeah, and, and his, his, his 
brother was a very good pilot too. He was, he was flying Cessna gliders, but apparently after I met him, he became he got accepted into the Air Force or the Navy and went to the top, I think, as far as his um, training course went. Because yeah, I used to fly Blanix out of uh, Warwick, Southern Downs. Oh, okay, well, that's, that's where I used yeah. to fly on, on the Easter comps. Okay. Going back before you were probably born, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Go back in the early seventies. Okay, yeah. No, I was born then, but um, yeah. I was I was flying there in the mid eighties while I was okay. at university, and yep. uh, yeah, and I was with um, Don Abel and some of the other guys from the club. Uh, Ivor Davies, I think the gentleman's mm. name was. I'd have to dig up his uh, my glider book to get everyone's names out, but uh, mm. yeah, it was. Uh, Blanicks were a beautiful aircraft, and I, yeah, I did my first ever um, glider loop in a in a Blanick. Okay, absolutely beautiful. And it's nice uh, gliding out that way too, good thermals. And uh, yes. I ended up flying, a lot of my gliding was done out at uh, John Darien, west of Toowoomba, which is yep. very flat um, black soil. So you get very good heating and very good oh, thermals. Yeah. Probably one of the best thermal areas that I know of in the world, possibly, because it's this wonderful black soil and, and you could pretty much close your eyes back then and lay in the paddock and, you know, without any hitting anything. It's a lot more cool. a lot more obstacles now. They've got a lot more uh, dams and uh, wheat, but not wheat, they've got cotton now. So a lot more yep. obstacles now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you've got to dodge a few things if you do an outlandling. <laughs> mm. So how, how many hours would you have in gliders? Oh, not that many. I think it was over only 100 or so. Okay. But uh, I, I did a lot of, um, lot of, I did about 50 flights to go solo, about yep. it was still short flights in a little thing called Kookaburra. And oh, okay. And yeah. I changed uh, about five flights before the solo. They put me into a, into, a, into the um, Bosian. Um, but um, and a lot of our flights early on was at coastal. We were flying at Maruchidor and places that didn't get much um, well, any thermals really. So we just had lots of up and down flights. And then yeah. once we once we got to Chandarian, we got uh, nice longer flights. So that was good. Yeah, no, I, I know those feelings. A couple of my uh, glider flights in um, out at, out at Massey Aerodrome, they were uh, in winter and. Uh, I'm just looking at, I've just stuck my logbook out and there was a few 11-minute flights in there. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've, yeah. Got about, I've got some 30-second ones where the cable broke on the Ooh. winch launch. Yeah. That was all good experience. Yeah, that, 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 that wakes you up a lot. Um, that yeah. was all aero tow, but oh, okay. I never tried winch. No, I actually love winch. I think I had, I had a club record for a while there for the highest winch launch on a nice strong wind day. Okay. It, 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 it did strain the cables a bit. <laughs> so, I, so I was told. <laughs> yeah, and I was granted. My mate and I got granted once on the same day for things like that. We in this in uh, in um, inexperience in a very yeah. strong windy day. I got caught out and blown way away from the, the strip and had to put it down on the deck 100 knots and come back and ground effect to hop over the fence. And he his his little misdemeanor was he landed and then rolled towards the hangars for hangar landing and the wind tipped him up and tipped the aircraft through a, a fence Oops. and the wire strained against the canopy and then exploded the canopy and then he kept going forward to the Y, ran across his neck and stopped and left a nice red mark right on his neck. Oof. So we were both crowned that day. That was inexperience in strong winds. So. Yeah, yeah. Ouch. Lucky. Yeah, it was, lucky. it was very close. Yeah. Actually, I was just looking at one of your cartoon strips here uh, from a couple of weeks ago where uh, Ding the Duck is doing an exam and the question comes about what happens if you lose uh, power on, de- on departure or something. He says, aim for the <laughs> hangar. Yeah, 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 crash the maintenance. Yeah, 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 yeah crash the maintenance, yeah. <laughs> It's less of a walk for them to repair it again properly. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just practical, <laughs> isn't it? Really. Yeah. Now, um, with your um, fixed wing powered, uh, about how many hours would you say you've got there? Not that many, because the last four or five, six years has only been, has only been probably a few hours a year. So yeah. just between biennial to biennial for a while. But um, but I'm getting back into it this year. I'm hoping. That's good. It's always good to get someone back out and and flying more regularly. So quite clearly, there's a, there's a lot of influence from your flying. It goes into the strip. So um, you mentioned Ding wasn't your favourite character because he's a pain in the butt, so to speak. He's just <laughs> never getting there, although he's great for representing the frustrations we all feel. 
But who is your favourite character? It can vary from day to day, but I think generally I love the rats because yeah. they're, they're pretty versatile and they, they do things that are a lot of fun. Being just kind of stuck on this, this kind of frustrating journey of, of trying to succeed in studies and, and, and all that stuff. And, but these guys, other guys, can, they can go far, further afield and do things. They can have genies and they can go into space and all that sort of thing. Yes. So not as restricted as Ding, but Ding's got this goal and they've got no goal other than just to have fun. Yep. <laughs> and uh, we're actually working on a TV show for these characters right now, which oh, today, cool. was, today I got some deadlines for it, so, for the show. But yeah, it's, uh, we're working on that for about seven years. Uh, there's a ding duck perseverance coming through. But um, yeah, the rats uh, have a, a, a lot of versatility, and so we're looking to pursue the show based on them. I guess if you combine those two ideas too, I guess sometimes we all get um, so focused on our goals in life and the relentless pursuit of them, I guess um, we sort of forget to have a bit of fun at times, so there's probably something a bit deeper in that. Yeah. The the trick is to, um, you know, you make all these little points in a cartoon, but the, your main goal is to be humorous and you don't want to be preaching anything, really. Yeah. But those things are there to be had, and I think um, whenever you do humour, often you, you touch on things that are truthful. Mm. So that's probably exactly right. You know, you just, you know, I don't want Ding to be too too focused, so I've got to... I try and break him out a bit if I can. No, the uh, the rats in space was good where they built the um, the rocket and blasted it off. That was <laughs> hilarious. The um, especially the return to Earth, but uh, yeah, I, I do quite enjoy the um, air traffic controllers ones where uh, you know he's he's up up the tree yelling out and and uh, yeah, it's there's there's some good stuff in there. That's well, I've definitely yeah. encountered some of those scenarios. <laughs> It's amazing. I mean, I, I just had to make a dumb joke, but I, I'm, that those cartoons are picked up by several international um, air traffic control organisations all over the all over the world, and they appear in their magazines in Denmark and wherever, oh, cool. America. And if I ever get my licence, I think I've got a few uh, clearances organised through, through these guys. But, um, <laughs> but it's amazing that they all say the same thing. They said, this, this is so close to the truth. I'm going, that's, that's a bit of a worry. Yeah. <laughs> but, it just seemed, you know, but like I say, when you do aim just to create humour, it's yep. amazing how close humour is to the truth. So, uh, so these things do hit, hit a nerve at times, but, or a funny nerve anyway. So they appreciate it. <laughs> That's an interesting point, Gary. Do you find um, you get a lot of feedback from the aviation industry, or is it just more you know the general public that? that I mean, how much feedback do you get? That's an interesting question in itself. I usually get a lot of feedback, but the internet's changing now, and people are going more on Twitters and things. So I still get feedback, but I get a lot of feedback from pilots. Um, quite often, it's uh, I love Ding uh, comments, and because I'm learning to fly and these sorts of things, or I'm a commercial pilot, and this rings true, or, or air traffic controllers. So I do get a lot of feedback. I have had a lot of feedback over the years from everything from Air Force pilots to um, who was it else? I think NASA. NASA. Uh, oh, cool. Did a cartoon for them um, because they were developing uh, some vehicle. But yeah, it's a lot of lot of feedback from all sorts of groups in aviation. But I do get a lot of general comments too from those who like you know, other characters as well. Actually, it wasn't that; it was Boeing who developed the big um, the big spy pilotless aircraft. So I did a cartoon just for them, which was appeared in the strip years ago. <laughs> Excellent. I know you've um, done a few golf themed ones as well. I've, I've I know I've sent a couple of those links to your site across to my father, who's a avid golfer. There, do you play much golf? Uh, I play golf every Wednesday morning at dawn. Not today; I was too busy. But um, but yeah, I don't. I just do it because it's a way of getting out of the office. It's and my and my father plays, so we. It's he's eighty two, so we keep playing while he can, and he's he still thrashes me. So <laughs> it's a good 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 walk around the paddock and uh, and a bit of fun. Don't take it too seriously. <laughs> oh, you know what they say: it never rains on a golf course, even when it's raining. It's uh, you, know, you got the umbrellas up. No, no, it's not raining yeah. here. <laughs> well, that's I've got a classic joke in the strip. If you do this. 
go on my website, look at the search engine and type in golf, you'll find one where this happened. Dad, we were meant to go play golf. I think Dad phoned me and said, come on, uh, come on down now. Cause, you know, and I did. And I'm walking down there, it's raining. I'm walking up down to where he's hit off and I'm walking up there through this rain. And I got to him and said, why are we playing this? I said, well, it's, it's going to rain tomorrow. <laughs> 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 so I just, I just turned around, went back home to the office and, uh, <laughs> and wrote the joke. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that's, uh, that's golf, isn't it? Yeah, an interesting one that I always have with golf, and I mean, I don't play golf, but um, I spent a bit of time living in the US with an Air Force family, and it seemed to me that every time we went to an Air Force base, there was this wonderful golf course around it, and um, uh, one base commander told us one time that that was part of the uh, United States Air Force philosophy on building an Air Force base, that you'd find a good golf course and build an Air Force base right next to it. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> so bomb the Air Force base and, and serviceable in, Yeah, that's well, right. That- that's carried over to Thailand. Um, I don't know, if, uh, Gary, if you've ever been to Bangkok, but uh, the old international airport, Don Muang, which has the commercial operations on one side and the uh, the military on the other, right between the two runways is an 18-hole golf course. That right. <laughs> and you play you play the the, the top nine, and yeah. then to go across the uh, to the bottom nine, you've got to cross an active taxiway, and yeah. they have a set of lights and all that kind of stuff. And you'll be standing there, and a seven four seven will just trundle past you, going off to the other runway, or Good you'll be thing. trying to take a chip shot, and a um, an A three forty will drop down and pop the reverses, or an F sixteen will take off from the oh, back. When I was last over there, it was a um, an F five, but I think they've got F sixteens now. But uh, it's it's one of the most distracting places. My father and I'd be out there and it would be the worst game of golf ever because, <laughs> oh, look at that plane. Oh, check that. Oh, here comes Qantas. Oh, yeah. Head down, swing. Oh, stuff that. <laughs> That's a nice, relaxing place to get play golf. If I played there, the heavy aircraft would be in danger. So oh, you reminded me of when we used to fly gliders at Marucci Airport. It was way back in the days. It was just a little airport. that had the three o'clock Fokker Friendship every Saturday afternoon and yep. we had to, used to have to come out of the air every half, half an hour beforehand and wait half an hour until they'd been and gone. So in the meantime, we just parked the aircraft on the edge of the runway and sleep under the or sleep on the, on the edge of the runway and quite often we'd be sleeping in the, or, and we'd notice well there'd be a frogger engine wing would actually pass over our head while we're <laughs> lying on the grass on the side that's how relaxed it was back in those days but it was, yeah. uh, yeah. reminds me of those, those days yeah, back in the good old days when you could get away with that <laughs> yeah that's right and we used to fly it uh, ambly too amongst all the in those days if uh, sorry if the phantoms yeah, that's when we had all those sort of higher. Oh wow! Uh, it's taken us. It like, took us around a few, inter- few interesting places. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. And, and so was Dean Duck. Is when in the days before before the security madness hit, uh, I'd often get invited up to the front cockpit to fly in yep. the the uh, spare seat yep. because I just I used to pass a book to the hostie and say Ding Duck. Uh, I did Ding Duck, and I'd, I'd get I knew I used to get quite often the front front seat. After a while, I stopped doing it, but um, but had had some interesting flights to the front, and also got to fly with the roulettes and. Uh, Oh, cool. Have, wow. a, have a day in the F-11 uh, sim. And, so oh, it's got so me around with yeah. flying, fortunately. Jeez, we ought to oh, uh, awesome. hit you up with some tips on getting that sort of stuff, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> I think all the old tips don't work anymore. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm still trying. Yeah, it's, oh, it's changed world, I tell you. World, yeah. It is. It's a sad world now. Yeah. Yeah. Gary, um, you said you're, uh, you're, the, the swamp is in syndication all around the world. Would we find it in any particular, uh, say, aviation magazines in this part of the world? Oh, yeah, it's in uh, AFA magazine. It's a lot of. I, I, it's also in a lot of free magazines, like a lot of club magazines. I get let people use them out of interest for the for those kind of magazines. So Western Australian, um, Tarmac Topics, and places like that. Or rather, originally my first cartooning ever published was an aviation booklet I did called Soaring Satire, which is a, uh, published by my own gliding club. 
but yeah, mate, I'm not published around the world. I'm published in Australia and I'm published over in Scandinavia at the main, and New Zealand in the main areas. I've got some small is actually licensed in Japan for a clothing range. And ironically, it's a, it's a high-class golf clothing range. <laughs> and uh, So you can go to any big shop, any big golf shop in Tokyo and you'll find uh, Swamp right, right next to all the top brands over there. They do a very good job, the Japanese, with their clothing. That's so great. It's, it's over there and we're negotiating a deal, similar deal in Korea right now. So, But the Cardin's not known in those countries, only, only will be known by its, uh, its clothing brand. And the, would you believe the, the logo for, they're building the whole brand around is Duck Bum. Which ding, dings, bump sticking up in the air out of the swamp. That's the that's the symbol that they're building their whole, entire fortune around on this. That's on awesome. That. So it's becoming like a like a little Lacoste kind of symbol. <laughs> so it went from a whole lot of characters just down to the one, and that's the one they, they chose as the the one they wanted to, rel- to uh, relate to and make that the brand name or the well, brand the, symbol. The ducks do quite often uh, have run-ins with the alligators in the swamp. Yeah, occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. So and that's uh, right, the Lacoste. Yeah. So uh, Gary, just before we finish up, uh, your website is at swamp.com.au. That's correct. Excellent. And, uh, of course, uh, we, you mentioned the AOPA magazine. Of course, uh, I should make note of that one. That's Australian Pilot. And, uh, actually, um, the latest edition of Australian Pilot features you and us. So <laughs> we actually got a okay. mention in the last one. So Very yeah, good. we definitely want to promote that one this week, Grant. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. They, that was um, Kathy Mexted's article on the Melton Air Show. I look forward to reading it. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Gary. We appreciate it. Okay, pleasure. Thanks very much. And welcome back, folks. Well, there you go, Grant. That's a pretty full program and a really interesting chat there with Gary Clark. It's um, always good to uh, catch up with people and get their aviation story, one of the things that we really enjoy doing here on the show. And, uh, yeah, the swamp, I must admit that I, um, I'm i a fair way behind. I actually get it delivered to my inbox every day, but it's one of those things that gets filed away and I, I don't always catch up with it. But interesting that Gary Clark uh, was saying there that Ding Duck wasn't his favourite character, whereas I would probably judge that most people that read the swamp probably would regard Ding as the favourite character. It's certainly mine. Yeah, well, that whole you know, go go underdog. Come on, dude, you can do it. But yeah, I, I still, I still really love right now the the one of Ding going to study and suddenly the ground opens up in front of him and then later an asteroid comes down and hits the homework and things like that. And that's very topical for me at the moment as I'm trying to get time to do my own study. And it's, uh, yeah, every time I go to do it, something else gets in the way. Yeah, so Grant, you should tell the listeners uh, what you've been studying, uh, speaking of that. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's everything I need for my uh, balloon pilot's license. It's uh, navigation, meteorology and so on as they apply to ballooning, plus also the code of conduct, dealing with landowners and and how, as well as how to actually fly a balloon. You know, it's not just uh, put a bit of heat in, pull a bit of heat out. There's a little bit more to it than that. What is the, the screaming part as it hits the ground? or do you have Yeah, totally. The uh, the stunned look of surprise as the ground gets ever larger. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the, yeah, it is, it is sort of put a bit of heat in, pull a bit of heat out, but it's knowing when to put the heat in and when to pull it out. That's, that's the tricky part. Well, of course, as we all know, according to Douglas Adams, the major skill in learning how to fly is simply the skill of uh, throwing yourself at the ground and missing. That's correct. Correct. So I guess you could apply that to ballooning somehow. Well, I can only hope that uh, the flying school that I wound up at uh, at Mildura has uh, some of Douglas Adams' more favourite methods of uh, distracting people so they do miss the ground when they throw themselves at it. Well, let's hope he... that nobody, let's hope, you know, if you need to throw a bit of ballast out, Grant, you wouldn't throw the odd passenger out, would you? I mean, well, it depends yeah. who the passenger is and what their ballast rating is, I guess. You, you know your temper, Grant, you know, you have to. <laughs> <laughs> Come fly with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the way to the ground. <laughs> hey, look, can you see that? It's a bit far away. It's about 3,000 feet down below us. Here, I'll help you see it clearly. Ah! <laughs> 
Anyway, mate, that just about wraps it up for now, except I can hear the posty coming, I think. Oh, this posty is really cool. He always comes just at the right moment. I don't know how he does it, mate. We must have him on a good retainer or something. Oh, I think so. <laughs> listener mail, listener mail, folks. We've had a fair bit of listener mail since our last one. Grant, do you want to kick it off? Uh, Stephen Silk has sent us in an email via Twitter about a uh, rather handy website. Yeah, that's right. He uh, he pointed me at uh, askthepilot.com. That's www.askthepilot.com. It's a great site with lots of information and help from an airline pilot in the USA. Um, he's also a frequent flyer, and uh, he writes the Ask the Pilot column for Salon. And uh, it's it's really quite good for people who aren't familiar with what goes on up the front pointy end when you're flying long distance and domestic around around the country. So he has uh, lots of FAQs and, and uh, commentaries around uh, topics and issues that come up and questions that people ask him about why do airlines work the way they do? Why is, is airline travel as it is? So, yeah, if you're ever looking for some answers and some interesting uh, interesting descriptions and comments send people to askthepilot.com it's a great way for them to uh, have an enjoyable read. Yeah just having a look here and uh, some of the uh, frequently answered questions is uh, things about wings and why nots and airplanes and how they fly. Yeah and congestion at various airports and things like that as well. Yeah turbulence, wind shear and all that sort of stuff and why you shouldn't worry about that sort of stuff just turn the in-flight entertainment up but of course if you're listening to this program we would assume that you've already conquered your fear of flying so uh, maybe that might be one to uh, you know, refer to people who just don't get it. Yeah, or the non-believers grant. Oh no, heretics, outcast, unclean. <laughs> Next bit of email comes in uh, from our friend Stephen Pam over at uh, Hound TV. Steve's just telling us that he's a little bit behind in his uh, podcast listening, and he's just uh, notched over episode twenty-nine of PCDU, where we had that rather uh, uh, confusing discussion about different checklists and uh, you know the different uh, mnemonics that we might use to remember things. And of course, uh, you might might remember that uh, I was learnt the uh, Gumps check, which is uh, gas undercarriage mixture prop switches. Uh, but yes. uh, Steve's actually talking about a pre-takeoff checklist if memory serves and that's temp fish yeah that's the, that's the run-up one and i used to do that in ga as well uh trim set for takeoff position mixture set uh, uh i actually did mixture mags and masters except you normally normally leave uh go across the masters on the mags to both and the uh mixture full rich propeller pitch well that wasn't applicable in my cessna 152 that i was flying and neither is it applicable to him in the stalk that he's flying in the ra world fuel pump on and quantity sufficient for mission according to his one well um yeah, mine was just uh, fuel quantities were good because I didn't have a pump. I high wing, so I was draining. Uh, instruments and controls, yep, and switches and hatches and harnesses secure. Tempfish was the one we used to use as well. But uh, interesting, this other one that he's got here, fibs. That one goes fuel quantity sufficient. This is a pre pre landing check. Fibs fuel in quantity sufficient to go around. Selectors to both instruments in the green etc brakes operational and off uh the stalk apparently has a hand operated brake which can be locked off on for parking so you don't really want to land with that on and uh switches as required like lights radios mags fuel pump etc so that's an interesting little one there fibs you know i'm gonna land yeah fibber so uh thanks steve for sending that in and uh, yet another reminder of just uh, how much i've forgotten about you know how to fly an airplane Remind me one day to uh, run you through my, some of my ballooning checklists. <laughs> They're quite long. They don't have any mnemonics. Yeah. They're just, you know, is the ground close? No. Right. Fuel? Yeah, good. Right. Passengers haven't jumped out? No. Cool. Yeah. 
<laughs> awesome. Sounds much easier. All right, Grant, and just one more bit of uh, listener email here and from Trent Donovan. And when I say one more bit, actually, we got uh, three very detailed emails from Trent. So I'll just uh, summarise a few of them. You, re- you may remember, folks, uh, quite a few episodes back now, we were discussing uh, aircraft movements at Jandicott, which is the uh, GA airport in Perth. And, uh, of course, uh, not having a lot of experience over there in the West, we were asking listeners to uh, send us some information about uh, just how busy it is over there or whether or not it's busy. Well, Trent writes, uh, greetings from Perth. Uh, name's Trent Donovan. A 20-year-old commercial-rated pilot and flight instructor currently doing some uh, ground instruction at the Western Australian Aviation College whilst waiting for a flying job. Uh, says he's been listening to us uh, since episode one, so good on you, mate. And uh, is offering to uh, let us bring us up to speed on anything we'd like to know uh, about uh, happenings over there in the West. So, uh, Trent, we really do appreciate that. Now, I sent a few uh, emails backwards and forwards with him, uh, you know, thought I'd uh, capitalise on his offer and take him up on that immediately, Grant. Anyway, uh, one of the emails he sent us here, Grant, actually, uh, he details the uh, total movement numbers for February of this year, 2010, for uh, all the GA airports, uh, the major, uh, well, what were GAP airports uh, <laughs> around Australia. And yeah. now, I would have thought now, you know, Perth being a much smaller city than Melbourne and Sydney and all this sort of thing, that I, I may, I was of the opinion that it probably would have been down the bottom. But in fact, uh, in February, Jandicott was the second busiest uh, GA airport, or GAP airport, uh, in Australia. It's second only to Bankstown, and only by about 50 movements, Grant. We're talking here, uh, Bankstown for February had uh, 24,232. Janicott had 24,178. Interesting. I think uh, a couple of factors could play into that. Uh, One is that Bankstown is seeing a drop-off in some some aviation activities as people leave the area because they're not happy there anymore. But uh, the other, I'm, I'm not sure why, uh, why whether Janticott's gone up, whether that's seasonally high or I'd, I'd have to look at the trends and see and see what it's like. But it honestly doesn't surprise me with Janticott. There's a lot of activity goes on in Perth, a lot of flying. There's a, there's a lot of general aviation flying out there for um, not just little light aircraft, but also uh, a variety of um, you know business jets and things like that. And I guess it makes sense too, Grant, with uh, WA being such a massive state that uh, aviation is just the logical choice for uh, getting around and covering those distances in a, uh, a reasonable amount of time so uh, yep. yeah I guess when you look at it that way and, and as a training environment I you know I'm thinking too that it would be a great place you know you wouldn't have a, a lot of high congestion once you get away from the CBD sort of area uh, it'd be a great place to get out and do your, your navigation training your navexes and stuff like that so I guess the more I think about it the more sense it makes that it's a busy place uh, Moorabbin Airport here in Melbourne is actually second last uh, only just above Parafield and in February it had uh, about 19,500 uh, movements. So. Yeah, and uh, the latest is that uh, down here at Moorabbin where uh, Jetstar want to put their pilot academy, they're setting up a new pilot academy, they want to have it here in Moorabbin, and Kingston City Council, which is the uh, council surrounding the whole airport area, it actually wants all training moved out of the Moorabbin area. They're, they're not happy. They've, there was one mid-air collision that resulted in an aircraft landing in the backyard of a house, and uh, the council's magazine that they send out regularly is is saying, look, we just can't have these people flying over our heads and possibly landing on our schools or houses. The usual fear, uncertainty and doubt and things that, that go on. And you know, they talk about the noise and it's going to only increase with more Jetstar um, Academy pilots. So I, yeah, actually we're, dis- we're- I, I actually disagree with that assessment too, just as, a, as an aside, Grant, because they're going to be doing that training scheme and that's assuming it even uh, gets off the ground, figuratively speaking, of course. <laughs> But they are actually hooking up with Oxford uh, Aviation College, as I understand it. Now, you yes. know, um, they've only got a finite number of aircraft. So whilst they're currently engaged at Oxford in doing uh, airline training for other airlines, uh, I believe some of the Asian carriers or maybe some of the Indian carriers, yep. um, my assumption would be that 
those pilots will be progressively replaced by Jetstar cadets instead. Um, there's not a lot of room down there. They don't have a huge facility there. And, um, uh, of course, with most of the uh, vacant land on that airport now having been sold off to uh, other interests such as uh, industrial business parks and... Huge, factory outlet. Yeah, factory outlet. For shoppers and so on and buy your shoes and clothes. Yeah, and uh, direct factory outlets, these sort of places. I mean, there's really no place that uh, Oxford can really expand. Uh, and if, for those of you who live down here in Melbourne, I'm, I'm sure if you uh, know where they are, uh, they're down near the old Oz Air Terminal and um, there's really not that much room for them to expand. So I don't think it's really going to add to the amount of traffic that's already flying around Moravant. Yes, it is busy, but yes, folks, if you live in Kingston, the airport was there before any of you were, so just remember that. The fun part is what we really need is people living in the Kingston area to uh, call the council and advise them that they're not happy with the stance the council is taking because uh, I tried and they sort of discounted my comments because I don't live under the flight path or in the training area and uh, I thought that was a little annoying but uh, I can see where they're coming from on that. But Well I do live under the Moorabbin training area and that's the other thing to remember too is that the actual physical training area for Moorabbin is not over the city of Kingston it's in fact over Cranbourne where Correct. I live and uh, heading out towards Clyde and uh, and down towards yep. uh, Turridan so yep. uh, No if they, they were saying that if you're not you know I, I said no I don't live in Kingston they said well then you know sorry but you should try living here and listening to the noise <laughs> and even though I'm just a little bit further away up, up a bit further north and I do hear quite a lot of aircraft going over and I quite enjoy it. Yeah, I was going to say, if they can't appreciate those sounds, there's something wrong with them. Well, you know, I tried to point out to them that, um, so what are they doing about um, the main roads that go through their council because there's more deaths and destruction on those roads than there are from aircraft and they didn't really want to hear that. Anyway, uh, that's uh, just diverting there a bit from uh, Trent's email, but uh, just one more thing I wanted to touch on here and of course, as we mentioned, uh, Trent is an instructor and he just makes us a uh, a safety note here about the recent changes to uh, Class D. Now, of course, we've we've had discussions about that on the show in previous episodes and the uh, Class D changes have now occurred as we're recording this episode of the show that have been in now for a couple of weeks and uh, he just wants to make a couple of points here points to note would be the new vmc in uh, class d uh, the change of uh, gap approach points uh, which are now vfr approach points uh, yeah, you, don't actually, you don't actually have to use the vfr approach points you can call in from anywhere and say you're on the way in yep. nine times out of ten though you're going to get routed to a vfr approach point but you don't have to use them it's not a it's not a choke point anymore yeah he's also uh, pointing out other things like service movement controllers being reintroduced uh, the requirements for carrying radios and basically uh, it goes through a number of things that have uh, that we all by now as pilots should be up on that mm-hmm. have occurred with these changes and he just wanted to highlight that and I think it's worth doing here. He says also there's been a fairly major change in the new AIP update and he said the major change there is that the entire gap section has been removed as well as any reference to gap. So he's saying that the instructor in me would advise uh, anyone planning to sit an, air, an exam featuring air law, that's for PPL, CPL, air law, ATP and IREX uh, to have a good look over their AIP as it can get a little confusing. <laughs> no, really? Yeah. <laughs> you got that right, mate. But anyway, <laughs> Trent, a very, very detailed email. Of course, he did send us a lot more information, but uh, so we'll sort of touch on that again in uh, episodes uh, in the future. But I really appreciate that information, mate. And uh, uh, if you can keep it coming, we really do need uh, some good contacts over there in the West so that we can uh, keep our, our show as relevant as possible to uh, all sectors. We, we try not to keep this show too Melbourne-centric, but it, uh, it can be a temptation because uh, that's where Grant and I both live. And uh, also, Grant, we did put a bit of a call out to our Kiwi listeners in the last show. We haven't heard from any, but we know we do have quite a, a following over there in the, in Kiwi land. Uh, our New Zealand listeners, we're really looking for news and personalities and ideas. So uh, please let us know. Playing yeah, crazy down under at gmail.com. 
You never know. We could actually come on over to sample some of the cool flying options over there. There's uh, um, alternating classic fighters and uh, wings over Wanaka every Easter. They uh, do it every two years and alternate who's doing what on Easter. So it's great. They don't conflict with each other. You've got the Museum of Transport and Technology in Auckland, uh, which has a Solent and a Sunderland. When I was young, my father took me through that Sunderland. Um, he knew one of the uh, few of the folks there and was able to get a, um, a special pass to go through, so to speak. And so he took me climbing through that Sunderland showed me where he used to to work when he was flying in the aircraft things like that MOTAT is absolutely incredible well, well worth seeing if you're ever in Auckland there's uh, all sorts of aircraft restoration groups specializing in older aircraft there's a group in uh, I believe it's the South Island uh, just doing World War One aircraft rebuilds they're doing a lot of work with Peter Jack- Jackson of Lord of the Rings fame he's got a stack of aircraft there's uh, balloons over Waikato uh, in the Hamilton area there's so much going on and we do have a few friends over there and they keep us updated with what's going on in general but uh, we haven't had any real news updates so uh, uh, feel free, gang, and uh, hopefully we can come on over and visit soon because it's a lot easier to get there than to Perth. Yeah, so there's the threat, listeners, If uh, in, in New Zealand. <laughs> if, you, if you don't send us some stuff, we're going to have to come over there. Watch out, they may send Grant over. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I thought they did their best to get rid of Isn't that why you live here now, mate? Yeah, well, you know, I've been sent to Indonesia because I've been naughty, and look what happened there. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, another country being deported from to add to the list. Yeah, I know, I know. There's, there's so many countries left that I haven't been banned from. Yeah, well, that's because you, you keep dissing their uh, their national carrier, Garuda. <clears throat> yes, well, anyhow. Anyway, we'll leave the mailbag there, Grant, but it's time for shout-outs, and the first one we want to mention this week are our wonderful friends at the Airplane Geeks podcast. They've hit the century mark, mate, 100 episodes. Woo-hoo! That's pretty awesome. All right, fade out there. Come on, cut it out, folks. That's enough for applause. We don't want to let it go to their heads. Oh, too late. A great milestone to reach there, 100 episodes. They've been around since uh, mid-2008, the Airplane Geeks. And, uh, of course, as uh, you would all be well aware by now, that's where we originally started our, our little musings together every week, didn't we, Grant? And we, we yep. still make our Australia desk report there. So uh, if you don't listen to the Airplane Geeks, well, of course you should. And um, the segment that we do on that show is uh, not just a cut-down version of uh, Playing Crazy Down Under. We um, we actually make that as a separate production each week and uh, we get up to some zany antics uh, particularly this week Grant in episode 101 <laughs> oh yeah yeah you, you do yourselves a favor and listen to episode 101 just for the Ozdesk if anything sorry guys no you should be listening for the whole episode but the uh uh, Steve has excelled himself in his post-production skills for the uh, latest Ozdesk episode. It's amazing. Yeah, well, you'll actually have to listen to 100 to uh, put it in context. So to uh, Courtney Miller, who's no, not regularly on the show anymore, Courtney uh, got him, got himself a job with a, uh, a, shall we say, an unnamed aircraft manufacturer up there in Canada. I wonder who that is. Hmm. 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 One wonders. So that sort of precludes him from doing the podcast uh, these days, unfortunately. But uh, Max Flight, who's been there since the start, and Max runs the show, edits the show, uh, puts up with all my Skype calls saying, Max, how do I do this? How do do I fix this? (laughs) But uh, a lot of people say, gee, we, Steve, you do a good job with editing. Well, it's from Courtney Miller and Max Flight that I've learnt just about everything to do with editing. So uh, thanks, thanks, guys, and uh, well done. Uh, They also have our historian, David Vanderhoof. Yes, yes, he does occasionally deign to work with them, but um, yes, he's primarily ours, guys. And, yeah, the Wonder Boy, uh, Dan Webb, and of course, Rob, what's that guy's name? Oh, yes, Rob Mark. Yes. That's it, yep. <laughs> so well done, guys, 100 episodes. Uh, we've only been with them for about half that time, but uh, now we like to think that the show was really enhanced ever since the Australia Desk went, came on. Of course, of course. <laughs> Where else are you going to get that cheeky, witty repartee? (laughs) Right here on PCDU, Grant. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, that too. And uh, we also did a blog post. Uh, Grant, we should mention our blog that we started up, PCDU Commentary, and I actually put a, uh, a bit of a tribute to the Airplane Geeks on that recently. So that's blog.playingcrazydownunder.com or .com.au. Right. Yes, we've also got the .com.au domain. Anything .com for Playing Crazy Down Under .com, you can also put playingcrazydownunder.com.au. So if you're feeling nice and patriotic and Australian, put the .au on the end. Otherwise, if you're feeling lazy, just leave it off and go with the .com. But uh, yes, we did start blog.playingcrazydownunder.com. It's the PCDU commentaries, and uh, it's where we put our commentaries, observations, and so on about the uh, aviation business, primarily down here in Australia, but also comments about other things as well and other general general commentaries. So uh, a few of my earlier postings from Fly Me Friendly have been ported across to the blog, and whenever I do a new um, commentary or things like that, I, I put it in the in in this. PCDU blog now, so hopefully more people will see it. Yeah, and the other thing we're going to put in there too is a uh, category that I've entitled the podcast journey because uh, part, part of doing this show has been uh, the, the learning process that Grant and I have been going through trying to make this show sound as much like a radio show as we can. And so uh, what I'm thinking of doing is just uh, putting in a little bit of commentary here and there about uh, the podcast journey and, and what we're learning and things that we're picking up along the ways. Like how to enunciate That's and right. speak clearly and introduce pauses to help Steve when editing. And to not breathe between words, Grant. I'm trying, okay? <laughs> I've been going blue all show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, another shout-out here is to uh, a journalist that we met at the recent uh, Centenary of Flight Air Show, and that's Kathy Mexted. All right, quiet studio audience. Yes, now uh, Kathy Maxted, uh, she's a freelance journalist, but uh, she quite often submits articles to the uh, Australian uh, Air, uh, Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association and their magazine, which is Australian Pilot. And uh, she um, she caught us interviewing some people and decided she'd interview us interviewing them. And uh, it's actually uh, made it into the magazine. So uh, we yep. really appreciate that, Kathy. And that's in the uh, uh, just having a look here, Grant. That is in the May June version of Australian Pilot. So if you haven't picked that one up, uh, I'll forgive them for misspelling my surname that wouldn't be the first person that's done that but uh, just a bit of a backstory <laughs> there and there's some photos of grant interviewing andrew temby and a few other people yeah andrew's andrew's uh kneeling on the wing of his yak as we have a good well we're yakking on his yak there you go yeah it's it was great of kathy to include us in her article and much fun to meet her and have a chat and uh, hopefully we get to do do a few um well hopefully we get to meet up again in the future and uh, meanwhile a little bit of sneak news is that uh brian big the editor of the magazine has uh, just contacted me today actually and said uh, he's going to do a uh, wee little write-up on our podcast in the next issue of the magazine well what a great guy and we always said it was our favorite aviation magazine didn't we grant yeah yeah we did I'm pretty sure we said it was our favourite owners and club group aviation magazine, didn't yeah, we? awesome. Great stuff. <laughs> <laughs> We're reaching out to all the aviation magazines here in Australia and New Zealand because uh, we actually want to have a chat with them about what's involved in putting them together and present that for you guys. So that could be a future episode later in the year. Yeah, so he'll actually be interviewing us, he thinks, but it really will be interviewing him, interviewing us, or something like that. Anyway. We'll get very meta. Anyway, that's about it, Grant. Uh, any more shout-outs that you've got on your list there? Yeah, Steve, I do. I have a very important shout-out I'd like to do, and that's to Milford and Charlie at the Flight Time Radio Show. The, these guys actually produce a weekly uh, radio show in Florida, goes out live over the airbands, and they record it and put it up on the internet every week. And it's Flight Time Radio. You can find Flight Time Radio Show on uh, Facebook as well. And, uh, yeah, I've been listening to that for a while and uh, sort of got on their Facebook site and said hi and 
we started going back and forth and uh, was chatting with Milford a couple of times. And, and then one day he said, you know, I just found an, a podcast from down in Australia you might enjoy. It's called Playing Crazy Down Under. I said, funny you should mention that. I'm that Grant. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he and Charlie have given us a couple of shout-outs on the show and we've bounced back and forth a couple of times. They're a really cool couple of guys. It's a great show to listen to. Uh, a lot of fun to, to hear what flying's like in Florida. And, uh, yeah, there's a couple of uh, down south down south boys it's great uh charlie's an ex-air traffic controller both of them fly light aircraft um in fact charlie's uh, got a, the big project of getting his piper cub flying again and uh yeah they're enjoying our show and and yeah we're enjoying theirs it's a lot of fun yeah a couple of good old boys i think was the uh phrase you were looking for there mate yeah yeah they're probably going to kill me for the, for saying that but uh <laughs> you never know i mean it was fun listening to milford try and type australian uh <laughs> you know, he's, he's been trying to speak australian and uh yeah it was quite interesting with between he and charlie and some of their phrases so i, I may just have to drop in some yalls and see what we get yeah. y'all yeah. waha well, I don't know. I, I lived amongst uh, the Arkansans for two years of my life, and I still couldn't speak it like a native, so I'm not even going to attempt to in this forum. Yeah, well, I cheated. I lived in Boston, and, I mean, I arrived in Boston and didn't find anything too odd about the way they said Boston Harbour water. Yeah, Boston Harbour. But, yeah, but you say that, you, you know, you say it like that in the States, everyone falls over laughing. Yes. That was well. kind of confusing. But anyhow. Anyhow. <laughs> So excellent. No. In fact, you know, there's there's some really good shows around, just as similar to Milford and Charlie's. In fact, there's Flightline Internet Radio, which is another great uh, internet radio station, which focuses on aviation, and also Warbird Radio, which yes. talks, obviously, about uh, warbirds all the time. And, um, you know, you can just click on that and listen to the live stream. It's uh, really interesting stuff. Yeah, well, the big thing with Flightline is that Flightline Internet Radio is 24-7 uh, music and, and information suitable for uh, aviation types. And, yeah, Warbird Radio actually appears on Flightline Radio. I, I don't know if uh, Milford and Charlie had come on Flightline or not, but uh, yeah, so Flightline is actually 24-7 internet radio all about aviation, so a few of the podcasts get repeated on there, and uh, they have quite a few pieces uh, from the archives of various air shows as well. It's pretty cool stuff. Excellent stuff, mate. Well, we better wrap it up there as, as the timer rushes uh, very quickly towards two hours. I know it's been another long show, folks, but uh, it's been <laughs> nearly three weeks, so we thought we'd better give you uh, enough content to last you, uh, you know, for at least another two weeks, so uh, that's great. We've uh, recorded some more really fascinating content. Grant, should we hint at who we've been speaking to lately, or will we keep it a surprise? Oh, well, let's just say that we've uh, had a rather famous Australian lady to chat to who was uh, a um, one of the pioneer female aviators in the commercial airlines uh, big iron side of things with the large domestic airlines. Yep, so that'll be uh, probably the next episode. Um, so, oh, No, there might, might be a couple in between now and then. Yeah, do you Don't reckon, know. yeah, you never know. Anyway, so there's just one for those you know, younger folk around who uh, perhaps are not sure who we're talking about. There's a bit of research for you to do up until the next show. One more thing we'd like to uh, just uh, put out a bit of a request to folks is that iTunes has uh, provision there to uh, leave a review. And uh, uh, the more great reviews we get on iTunes is probably the further up the list we'll go with those guys. And uh, our stats show us that, uh, what do you reckon, Grant, probably two-thirds of our downloads come via iTunes? I'd say uh, probably about 70-80% easily. Yeah, well there you go. So from well. iTunes not some, and from the RSS feed as opposed to um, downloads or plays direct off the site, yes. Yeah, so uh, folks, we'd really appreciate it if you could uh, leave us a review, preferably a good one but, uh, you know, you, <laughs> you know, if, if you want to leave us a bad one, just let us know first so we know to delete it. And uh, <laughs> So there's a bit, of, a bit of homework for our listeners, a bit of research on who we might have coming up and of course, uh, if you can pop over to uh, iTunes and leave us 
us a review. That'd be great. But in the meantime, when you're listening around the world of online aviation podcasts, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.planecrazydownunder.com, or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at plainecrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.plaincrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Okay. On your marks. Get set. <laughs> Go. Yeah, that's right. He's He's got some good ones in there, and I'm just trying to bring up that damned email. Um, now, did he send it to... Where did he send it to me? Eh, did he send it to the company, or did he send it to the other company? Yeah, so uh, Grant, just uh, talking about... He's just, he's just telling us that he's... Bleh. But in fact, uh, in February, Jandicott was the second busiest uh, GA airport, or GAP airport, uh, in Australia. Only Second only to Jandicott, and only second by about 50 movements. No, no, second only to Bankstown. What did I say? Oh, yeah, second only to... <laughs> yeah, second only to Bankstown, and only by about 50 movements. I just found out today. Sorry, I was just waiting for the phone to stop ringing. Oh, okay. I was just waiting for that aircraft to go over. <laughs> oh, I didn't, I, I didn't know that we were getting a mention soon. Yeah, that's why I said I need that photo, didn't you? you, you dude, look at your SMS history on your phone. Oh. On your Crackberry. You mean my Crackberry that's out in the kitchen ringing now? Uh, um, I'll just have a look. Hang on a sec while I go and dive over for it. And, uh, you know, mate, we'll just cut all that out. <laughs> so, what did you say? For you to do until the next time we speak to you, Grant. But until then, oh, no, hang on, one more thing. But wait, there's more. We'll throw in a free set of... I might re-record that bit later. (laughs) (laughs) Would you re-record things and slot them in? Of course I would.